I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have Debbie and Quinn joining us today. How are you folks doing this evening? Great. Awesome. It's well, the middle Tom, of, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's the middle of the week, so we're past. That's right. Week. That's right. I, I'm kind of looking forward to it, and I have next week I'm, I'm on vacation, so. <laughs> that's good. Vacation's always good. That's right. Well, Tom had the chance to talk with you, so uh, Tom, do you want to go ahead and kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. Quinn, Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. And Debbie, you contacted us, uh, I'm, I'm sad to say it was probably three years ago and I was doing maintenance on the uh, email system and I found your um, the email that you originally sent us. So it, it, it's late, but your story, the two of you have such an amazing encounter with these things. Debbie, I want to start off with you. You you had a encounter when you were a little girl, and tell us that. We'll start off with that, and then I'm just going to let you just share everything that you guys have encountered. Well, just to give some background so that people kind of know where I'm coming from today, I am a registered nurse of almost 40 years experience, and um, so I'm trained both in the science world and in observation, because nurses are taught to do a head-to-toe assessment really quickly. Uh, and so when you work in trauma areas, high-risk areas, at labor and delivery, I had a lot of experience, 25-plus uh, years as a labor and delivery nurse. And now I do on ecology. I'm a breast uh, cancer oncology nurse for the last 11 years. So going back to my first, very first encounter, it was in 1969. I grew up in southeastern New Mexico in the desert, but my mom's oldest brother uh, lived in the mountains of southeastern New Mexico uh, at Cloudcroft, New uh, New Mexico. It's a village. It's the highest village in uh, New Mexico. The elevation is 8,900 feet. So we are old forest growth with some oaks mixed in and aspens mixed in. And I went to visit my uncle the first week of August. And, and he, I have two cousins that are seven and 10 years older than me. And so when they were smaller, uh, he had built a tripod and a trio of uh, pine trees. And I was an avid reader. And so my cousins were kind of like 
in that teenage age at that time. So I decided I uh, would take my book and I would go to this tripod uh, up in the forest, probably about 200 yards from their home. And at that time, they were uh, at the very top of the mountain. Uh, My uncle had designed his home and had built it. And he worked as a hotshot. And so I was laying on my stomach on the platform in the tree. And I seen something start to come down parallel uh, to a, a game trail. And I was, it didn't look like a bear. It was very large and hairy. I would think that the hair was about three to four inches in length. It was more of a cinnamon brownish color uh, coming down. And I just, fear overtook me and I became very frightened. I was shaking. Um, I even started having tears come down my cheek and I dropped my book on the tripod. And I think this is when the, what I would call a monster at that time, because I had no idea what a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot was. I had not heard of those words. And I was just frightened. And I thought, I have got to get down out of the tree and get to the house. So I was trying to climb down the tree. And I think I jumped the last six feet. It was approximately 15 feet in the air. But in the meantime, I kept my eyes on this monster. That's all I could think of was that it was a monster. And it seemed I had a red polyester short, you know, two-piece set on. In the high desert mountains of southeastern New Mexico, it is not unusual in the summertime, especially late August, that you could have uh, temperatures of 90 degrees during the daytime. So it was one of those hot late summer um, days uh, that I was uh, wearing this short set. And this creature crossed over the game trail and started up the opposite side. And he was kind of, there was some low bushes that he was grabbing a hold of. I never seen his feet. I did see his butt though. And it was very bubble like. So the glutes, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't understand the anatomy of the animal that you're seeing. And so I called it a bubble butt, but I ran to the house and I was crying. My uncle had just come home from work and he was trying and I was telling him, I said, I seen a monster. I seen a monster. I don't know what it is. It was just huge and it was big. And I kept using my arms and spreading my arms out. And so I was approximately, I think about 48 inches in height and it was wider across the shoulders than I was tall. And it, it took like three to five steps and it was at the top of the mountain and it turned its body, not its head, but its body. And it looked at me and it kind of had a short kind of scraggly beard that went down like just the upper third of it. And it had a very round head. It did not have a conical 
shaped head. It didn't have a real pronounced brow ridge either. So when my uncle got me in the house and he got my aunt got a cold washcloth and she put it on my face and I I just kept crying and I was hysterical and I was shaking. I'm sure I was in shock. Um, he finally he got he told me calm down. Let me tell me what you've seen. So I described it. And because I was an avid reader, I was very um, descriptive to him about its muscles across its chest, uh, that it had these big thigh muscles that I could see in the front that were almost like separated uh, in the front. And so he finally got me calmed down and I was hiccuping. And he said, well, I have a friend. And this friend, he went to the phone and he called this friend and come to find out this friend was a Mescalero Apache that came and talked to me. And he t he had me re-describe the animal to uh, him. And he told me, he said, they are a hairy people. And if you do not harm them, they will not harm you. And I guess I accepted it in my innocence of a nine-year-old child of wonderment um, that it was just this animal that lived out in the forest. And um, I can remember that I kind of dreamed about it that one night, but I didn't have nightmares about it. So fast forward to 2011 when the show Finding Big Bigfoot came out. It brought back the memories of seeing a Sasquatch. And so I approached my husband and I told him about what had happened. I had not really talked to anybody other than my aunt and uncle about it. So I started becoming kind of an armchair um, investigator. I read everything I could find on the Internet to... Um, quench my uh, knowledge of what I'd seen in this, uh, whether it was an apprehension or something that uh, was could hurt you, I didn't still quite understand. But my knowledge, uh, thirst for knowledge came out. And so the BFRO was having um, open uh, sessions where you could pay to go and do a trip with them. So in 2012, my husband and I went on a trip with the BFRO. And uh, Dennis Fall was the uh, guy that was in charge, and there was about 20 of us there. And we were in Colorado outside of... Jefferson. Col Jefferson, Colorado on this expedition and we didn't ever see one there but we had wood knocks uh we found footprints down near the creek where everybody was kind of camped at so the following year and my husband and i decided that we would go uh, again on another trip with them and hoyt uh, who is a native american was in charge of this trip at the caldas baldera and in the Jemez Mountains near Los Alamos. 
And so this is, again, a high desert uh, mountain area, and it is a volcano caldera, and there's a lot of hot springs in this area. And we, uh, as experienced campers, uh, we have taken our children their entire lives on camping trips all over the state of Texas into Colorado uh, and New Mexico. Uh, we decided that we would be the furthest uh, camp located away from the main group. So we were about a quarter of a mile from the main group in a bowl where elk hunters had built a big fire ring. And uh, the BFRO, actually, Kirk Brandenburg had recorded with a FLIR like the year or, or 18 months before of a Bigfoot peeking out with behind a tree in this meadow area. So we decided that this area in the bowl where elk hunters camped at, we would camp there. And we, it, we were, it was the last night of the expedition. We had a large fire burning and we were just kind of relaxing because we had about a eight hour drive to come back to our home in uh, Texas here in Lubbock. And uh, I was up poking uh, the fire and we had it blazing pretty good and a rock the size of a softball came flying from the east. I was facing the east and my husband was sitting in a chair with his back uh, facing the east and it hit the fire ring and it startled both of us. I know I jumped probably three feet in the air. Yeah, it hit her right at her feet on the fire ring. We had a pretty good bonfire going and I was sitting right behind her and was scoping around with my night vision and that rock come flying in and went pow and uh, we talked about that a little bit last night and and um, and it's really startling to me because we we had heard stories we had heard people tell stories about little pebbles being thrown but not one as big as this was and in fact we still have the stone in our garage we brought it home with us and so we stayed up till about 2 30 or so that morning and then we went to bed because we knew that we had the long drive home so about between i would say uh between five and six o'clock in the morning we started hearing it sounded like a crow calling and it was circling the tent outside 360 degrees and it kept it just kept going on and on and on you didn't hear any footprints you could just hear as it changed position outside the tent in the 360 degree um, it sounded like a crow but it really was not a crow sound similar but not quite well that was my question guys it was so how was it a little bit different? How was it that you listened to it and you go, you know, that's just not a crow? Kind of a, I would say a little bit deeper, but not, when we hear the crows like in our area of 
of New Mexico, they kind of have a uh, a kind of higher pitch, and this was a lower tone, and that's all I can describe. It didn't sound it, it sounded similar, but it wasn't point on like you would hear a, a large crow calling to you all the time. When I came out of the tent, there was no crows around. That was what was weird. Yeah. There was no crows around when I came out of the tent. We had but seen. we still heard it. We had seen crows in the area, but we hadn't seen any around the trees. So I finally got tired of it. I was like, something's out there playing with this. So I got up and I unzipped the tent. And you could hear something running off down in the ravine that dropped off real steep. So I assumed we never had a visual that it was a juvenile kind of playing with us to see what we would do. So we packed up and we forgot to tell uh, about when we brought the coolers home uh, from there. We have a black lab. She is 13 years old now. And she was a young lab at that time. And her name is Ellie. And Quinn went back to work. He was working in China at that time as a chief oil field uh, mechanic building uh, jack-up rigs. Jack rigs for the Gulf of Mexico. And he would travel to China for 35 days and come home. Well, I brought the coolers in and I put the coolers out on our back patio. And Ellie, she was probably almost two at this time. I went out to clean out the coolers and bring what food was left in the house. And I started to open the largest cooler and she started growling. And I was like, what's wrong with you, Ellie? You can't have any of this food. And she growled and she got in between me and the cooler. And I just thought that was really weird that maybe that we had our coolers up on the tailgate of the uh, back of Quinn's pickup. Maybe one of them had lifted. We didn't have the Yetis or the Arctics that we have now that have the rubber stack. They were just igloo, you know, type plastic lid coolers. If something had lifted that and she could smell something. We yeah, that's what I was wondering. It sounds like there was something. Yeah, that- and- And because I was at home by myself with her and Quinn had already gone back to work, she was in her protection mode at that time. And we forgot to tell you that. And we were laying in bed talking. And I said, remember when I called you and told you about what happened with the coolers? So we brought that up tonight. So that was our trip to the Valdez uh, Caldera in northeastern New Mexico. So my husband's mother-in-law, or mother, my mother-in-law, lived in Cloudcroft from 2003 until she passed in 2016. So fast forward, we went on many other camping trips to January of uh, 2016. It happened on the MLK 
uh, weekend. So, you know, the banks are closed on Monday. And as a nurse at the cancer center, because it's a holiday, we decided that we were going to go to the mountains because there had been a blizzard the week before. And people had told us, you know, on our Facebook, there was about two and a half inch or two and a half feet of snow. And so we thought we needed to go check on the house and make sure that there was no damage, that the ice hadn't done any damage, broken any windows. So we drove up that weekend and uh, spent the weekend. And we knew that the day that we got there on that Friday, that there was supposed to be another five to six inches of snow that night. So it snowed and it was a light powdery snow. We got up the next morning, and this was on a Saturday on the 15th of January, and I told him, I said, well, let's just go look and see if we can find any footprints. Let's drive over. I'm not going to name the lake, (laughs) but it's in southeastern New Mexico, and it is a water source for the city of Gordo. So we drove over to the lake, and it's on a paved road. Quinn had a four-wheel drive pickup, and so there had been no, they had cleaned the snow out, but this five to six inches of snow, his pickup could go through without any difficulty. And we came around one of the curves going to the lake, and I could see footprints coming down at about a 45-degree angle of the mountainside that were all just in line. And, uh, we stopped the pickup. I got out. I started taking pictures. I said, "These, Quinn, this is a juvenile footprint. It was a little bit bigger than my foot, and I wear a six and a half, but it was a lot wider than yeah, my foot. Yeah, it looked foot. like they came down the hill toward the road and slid a little bit and then stepped out on the road, and you could see where the snow had stuck to the feet and st- stepped out on the road because it was paved and then he went on down the road towards the lake so we got back after we took those pictures i said well let's go over on the back side and see what's going on so we come around another curve well the lake is frozen at this time because it's in the middle of january and crossing the lake there was all these single footprints going from where there was a lot of uh vines going up to an area that had been burned the previous year in a forest fire. Yeah, Um, it was heel to toe, heel to toe, straight line track, probably about a quarter of a mile on the end of the lake going straight up into the woods. So we got out and parked the truck and we walked about a half a mile there is a stable that is private property that butts up to the national force. So we stopped at where we were going to be entering private property and it had started snowing again and it was mid afternoon. So we decided that we would just walk back to the truck and um, get in the truck and come home because it was going to be dark in a couple of hours. Well, on the way back to the truck, The sun came out just right through the clouds and we could see that there was a cave on a real steep incline on the mountain 
on the west side of the road. So Quinn had a uh, spotting scope, and he started looking, and he spoke, and I'll let him tell you because he was the one that spotted the cave first and seen what was in the cave first. I leaned over the truck with my scope and was glassing all along that that ridge area because it was straight up. And I went up about all with my scope. Seemed about 50 feet when I saw, spotted this cave. And I looked in there and I zoomed in and I told Debbie, I said, man, there's something in there and it's moving around. And I said, I can see like a face grimacing inside the cave. And then I could see behind it, behind the face that was grimacing, it smaller looked like face. a smaller one, but it had a cone-shaped head. You could see its eyes. You could see its brow ridge. You could see its nose. But from about the chin down, it was covered because the big male was right there. He had, he didn't have a lot of hair on his face, but he looked pissed. And he was, he had a very pronounced, brow ridge, and he was grimacing real bad, looking straight back at me through the scope and everything. So Debbie leveled her camera that has a big, like 700% zoom on it and leveled it out and snapped a picture on it. And we had it sent in to a person and she cleaned it up and got it unpixelated. And there was at least five individuals. There's a big male. There was a female standing behind him. There was two juveniles, maybe three juveniles in that cave. And so we sent those pictures to you. No, uh, we, we looked at them. Yeah, yeah, they, they were... <clears throat> And I didn't realize at the time that this was in that area. This because there's snow all around the cave, right? Yeah, and it was brilliant white snow. So she took some of the whiteness out of the snow, and so it wouldn't, you know, reflect so much back on. And so you can see the pictures that have been. Uh, oh yeah, no, you could clearly see that there okay. was. The eyes, the brow ridge, and and it looked like it was bearing its teeth. Yes, that's and it had big block teeth. We didn't see any, you know, canines or anything like that. Uh, he had a very kind of a round head. I wouldn't call it a conical head, but the male, my interpretation of the male is different than Quinn's interpretation. To me, the way he's standing. He has hair on his face. It's short hair, but it's very groomed. And to me, he's a lot gray looking in his eyes. And the female, we feel like that there was a baby that was in the cave too. 
he had a very conical uh, black head where the other one juvenile that's showing the block teeth is, you know, like probably, I don't know how tall he is. We have no way. But to me, it would be like, uh, like a, probably a teenager, a 10 or 12 year old and a young person's life. But there was a little one up on his shoulder that looked apish looking too. I think they're just so different uh, in their looks and that they uh, morph as they grow. Uh, it changes and everything. So we had that experience that day. So we left when we started seeing the grimacing teeth because I kept telling Quinn, I probably took at least 30 pictures of it and I, and I could see him grimacing and I was getting real uneasy. And so I told How him, big I, was the um, opening to the cave? Uh, it looks like summer and everything. Uh, in fact, we were there at the cave area uh, this summer. It's probably about a six to seven foot width area. Across yeah, it's not quite as high. It's, it's not bit. as And I think what they do is... I think there's a back entrance because where this property is, the city of Almogordo owns that part of the property, but you go on the other, at the top of the mountain on the back side, and it's national force from back there. And I think there is probably a back entrance into that cave because you, to get up there, you would have to be a rock climber with some ropes to get up to the part of the cave to come into the front part of that cave. That's what I was saying. I don't think they went straight up the mountain into the cave. They had to come up from the backside and go down into it. Uh, and Have you guys been back to that area since? Oh, yes. Yeah. We go at least twice a year. And we... Back this summer, earlier in the summer, and we found the cave, and we thought, I'm not certain, but we thought we seen two individuals standing right above the cave. We didn't take pictures of it because we weren't sure, but we thought we seen two individuals above the cave, and I, I'm pretty sure... They winter inside there and everything. You know, it, it, you think about it, it'd be a good place oh, yes. for them because it's impossible they, or nearly impossible for people to go in there. Right. And they can see them. coming and going from both sides. And uh, it's just a real kind of a unique area right there. There's a bunch of boulders like a boulder field kind of off to the side of it too, because this cave opening is separate from where the actual boulder field is at. And I think, because we've been back there before and we couldn't see it very well, but this summer when we were there, uh, we could see it really well. And it was just unusual. But there's been a couple of fires back there and I think that's where they hold up over those fires because they've 
directed the stream flow for the Alamogordo watershed and they dredged all that lake out. It was beautiful and clear at one time, but all that soot had run down from them uh, trying to put out the fires and then it started again. So they had to redo it, but now it's all filled back up again. And it's just beautiful back in there. There's all kinds of food for them. There's deer, there's elk, and there's turkey, and nice, clear water for them to drink. So that's we feel like there's probably at least two plants up in there in the lake area where we visit. Well, we've kind of talked around to people. Uh, we have a Mescalero Apache friend, uh, and he thinks that because of this, what I call islands in the sky because of the mountain desert there. Uh, it's only about a 60 square mile area. So it's a unique uh, eco area for them. They have clear mountain water to run and they know where the waterfalls are. This year, because of the monsoon season, uh, there it was that area of uh, southeastern New Mexico received from uh, the, about the 1st of May through the end of July of over 36 inches of rain, which is a huge monsoon. It's been real dry the last couple of years, and they've had some uh, wildfires that come in that burn up right up to Redosa, and had to have, you know, firefighters come in from other states to help put it out. And, uh, of course, the Mescalero Apache Reservation runs between Cloudcroft and Redosa, which is about a 40-mile zone that is the Apache Reservation. And, of course, their community headquarters is Mescalero. Uh, but the elk are, have just overflowed that area. And there has been wild boar have been seen of course, the wild pigs have been coming in. There's just a huge amount of food available to the wild horses. And there's wild horses in the area. So that they are not lacking in, in any resources for them to be able to survive and have more than one group in that area. And I think they cross over because we have a friend. Um, his parents live down at Tularosa, which is down the mountain from Redosa, and Tule Creek runs through that area, and he goes in down at the creek all the time, and there is, I can't say if it's just the one clan, you know, over moving in, or if it's more, I believe it's more than one clan, but they're, the crops that are grown in that Tularosa um, area, basin area, they have a lot of wild onions. They grow uh, just different varieties of crop, watermelon, you know, the cantaloupes. Uh, they have potatoes that are grown in that area. It's just... And they raise goats. Goats have been missing. Uh, they raise sheep, and there's been several sheep missing. And uh, domestic hogs, they come up 
missing too. The domestic hogs do. They love pork. <laughs> I guess you could say they love pork. They love the wild hogs, but they love the domestic hogs too. I understand that. Mm-hmm. So then we went back the next day and took pictures of the cave and there was nothing in the cave or they were not coming to the front of it. So we just, over the years, we kept going back and back and checking periodically because it's about a 42 to 52 mile drive from Cloudcroft to this area. So going back to Cloudcroft area where my mother-in-law lived at, we kind of have let our kids grow up in that area, run around in the canyons. We hike. Uh, we've taken the ATVs out. Uh, there's a lot of mountain bike up in there and everything. There's a lot of uh, activity that can be done that is family orientated. So Quinn and I was there um, the New Year's Eve weekend uh, between. 2017 and 2018 and this happened on December 31st of 2017 there was no snow that winter it was a real dry winter and so we decided that we take our dogs when we would leave home here in Lubbock and travel to Cloudcroft to stay at the house we took our dogs out we weren't going out to do any kind of investigating not setting any recorders out. We set our recorders out quite often and catch stuff on, you know, sounds on our recorders. But we decided that we would take our two dogs that we had at that time. One of them was Ellie, our black lab. And then we have a little rescue dog that is half lab and uh, half long haired dachshund. She has the long haired dachshund body but the lab personality, and she tries to be the alpha of the uh, of our dogs. So we were walking in on a trail that we didn't go in on very often, but it was a pretty cleared off trail. It was wide. We know that elk hunters like to come in and camp on this trail. So we were only going to hike in about a mile and come back out. And, um, it was around 50 degrees. I have a video. I don't know if I sent the video to y'all, Tom, or not. But it shows Quinn was climbing over a deadfall. And I was filming him. And I was telling, setting up the scenario um, for our friends. Because I was going to post it on Facebook. That we were out in the forest. And we had our dogs with us. And we come upon a little, uh, like a tent that had been uh, made of wood that an elk hunter had set up. And I was spanning. I've learned to film real slow when I am spanning uh, around. And I got to a one point in the film, and I could see only what I could say is two juvenile Bigfoot. One of them was very much chimp-looking, and he was squatted on his haunches like a toddler will squat. And there was another one. Uh, he didn't have a lot of hair on his face. But the second one was all black. He had hair all over his face and almost looked like he had a, a little snout going on. And 
they had a little X. They were underneath a pushed over pine, a lateral pine, and they were kind of in the pine limbs. It was probably a 20 foot that had been pushed over and kind of broke, you know, off probably 10 or 12 inches above the ground. And they were in so that if you weren't looking just right and you knew what their colors were, but because we had other experiences and I had watched, had seen some pictures of, of some friends of ours that had caught some juveniles, this one that looked like a chimp just stood out to me and I was almost shaking. And just as I got to, I started to take a step forward. I was probably about, I want to estimate 35 feet away from them. Just as I started to step forward, the little chimp one duck walked backwards and he disappeared more into the limbs. And I didn't even notice the black one disappear i didn't see him because i was so focused on this little chimp juvenile that we were seeing and it was and i couldn't tell quinn i was too i was like couldn't uh, describe what i was seeing and he got ahead of me about 50 feet and once he i got up i sped up my walking and i got up to and i said i just seen two juveniles and he goes well, why didn't you say anything? I said, I didn't want to know if there was a big male or a, a female or if we walked into a nursery area where there was maybe an older one. I just got a real uneasy feeling about that time. And I felt like we needed to walk back out. And uh, I told him, I said, we, I think we need to leave. I think I've seen something that I wasn't necessarily supposed to see. We've always seen, we captured structures, very intricate made structures like something a human would build, but not quite. The limbs would be all interwoven and everything, sort of like a, sort of like a bedding area for a juvenile when the adults go off hunting and everything. We've seen X structures up in there, teepees, bows. Uh, man, you can't believe the many structures we have seen up in that area. And now, is it just pretty mean, much in that one area, or have you seen them in other places? We've seen them in other places like I told you before we have a group of friends that from about 2015 to 2019 we were going down into the big thicket in East Texas a lot and doing primitive camping off of the Lone Star Trail down there and we trust these friends the one of them is ex well more than one there's three of them that are ex-military one of them is a professional tracker. One of them had been a sniper in the military. And we learned a lot from just being around them, what they were showing us, how to find tracks. Um, when we set our recorders out, what we need to do, we've kind of learned that if we 
set our recorders out. We triangulate them uh, so that we can catch sounds from all area uh, instead of just from a certain, you know, set of degrees that you don't catch everything that you need to. And so we've learned with our audio that if it's in the 1500 range uh, and we're running a spectrum out on our audio, we're more likely in the range of a Bigfoot making a sound instead of a coyote, you know, howling. Uh, we've even caught, caught a bobcat a couple of times on our audio because they can do just such a huge variety of sounds that they can make with their vocals. It's just unbelievable. And it's kind of, if you don't know what those sounds are from a bobcat uh, or even a cougar, uh, and we have cougars in southeastern New Mexico, at least once a year, the game wardens are posting a picture and those cougars tend to get in that 200 to 250 pound range because they're killing elk. Five inch paw tracks. I'm talking huge tracks that sink way deep in the soil. I'm talking huge mountain lion tracks. Yeah, yeah, these are big cats. Yeah. Because they're the, you know, there's nothing else that's going to prevent them, you know, from taking down what they need to. And the elk are so prolific through that area. Um, the mescaleros, you know, have high paying hunts for paying customers. And but the elk have just there's just so many of them and they can are so massive and you don't realize how massive they are until you're up in a vehicle and Quinn has a currently has an F-250 and that there's elk in our area that are taller than his F-250, you know, four by four on uh, his Ford pickup truck that their heads will be above his truck. And uh, so there's just so much variety there. It's just crazy what we have seen. And, I don't claim to be a researcher. We do this because we think it's fun. We go out, we do the primitive camping. Um, we want the experiences. If you just be a camper, a lot of times uh, you can draw them in. Uh, we always have a recorder at the campground because sometimes when you get right out, you'll hear some wood knocks. The ones that are in that Cloudcroft, Redosa area, I have not heard the classic, what you would call the classic Ohio howl or a, a scream in that area. They do what sounds like craw, crows calling all the time, and they will come in and... Or uh, barred owls. Or the barred owls, too. And, you know, the barred owl in how I always figure out that it's not an owl at the very end of when the barred owl is the fake barred owl is doing it uptakes to a higher pitch, like its voice breaks at that point. Um, and so, but they're quiet. Um, you'll hear some wood knocks occasionally or what people might call rock knocking uh, or clacking. 
but they're pretty quiet, not unless you get way far out in the forest. And we were on a hike in the big thicket of Sam Houston National Forest. And we went out one night, and there was about six of us, and there was this one girl that had been in the Navy and everything. And we walked up in there about a quarter of a mile, and there was this pond. So there's about maybe seven or ten of us, and we stopped right there at that pond, and we sat there for about 30 minutes. Nobody making a sound, nobody saying anything. And you started hearing the monkey chatter, and you started hearing rocks thrown in the water. There's a little pond there. You started hearing rocks thrown in the water, and uh, but the frogs all quit. That's yeah, what, the frogs and all in the pond just became, shut up. Yeah, it became sterile. No crickets, nothing. This was in the middle of the summer. No crickets, no frogs, nothing. And we're all just sitting there being very, very quiet. And you started hearing the monkey chatter in the background, and they're throwing rocks in the pond. You could hear go, you know, they're throwing the rocks in the pond. So we walk up there past the pond about another quarter of a mile and this one girl all of a sudden she just freaked out and she started throwing up and she said I need to go back and she was a Navy veteran and she said I need to go back I need to go back man I feel sick I feel sick she, she was scared. Up. She didn't throw up at that time. She yeah, until but we got she to was scared camp. and everything. So we all headed back. We started back, not real fast, but we could hear something parallel in us. And we had our one dude in front of us with a lever action 30-30. And I had my Glock. 23 and then my wife was behind me she wasn't armed but we we started out there and you could hear them walking beside us and we would stop and they would stop and then we started out again and you could hear them start with us parallel and we would stop, and they would stop. And finally, we got on out of there, and we didn't ever hear anything again. But that was crazy that that night. So do you, do you have any questions that you want to ask us? Or Well, I, I had a little bit of a question um, just on the person that – is that the same person we talked about last night that got sick? No. 
totally different. I had forgot about her. She only came one time with us while we were in South Texas, and that was her first and only trip uh, with us, and she never came back ever to that area, and, or not with our group. She didn't and everything. She got so upset that night. I don't think she was mentally prepared, even though she had been in the military and she was armed, trained, and she was carrying arms at that night. Yeah, uh, but she, it really, uh, I had almost forgotten about her because we had only met her that one time on that trip. But the one that we talked about last night, he is one of our, he's a professional tracker. Him and another female that's a friend of ours and another ex-military uh, and I went into this area that uh, we have a special name for, and uh, we were going to go in and just have a set down. And so uh, it comes off of a forest road, and then the trail, uh, our friend, he had it uh, mapped out on his, his GPS that we were going to go into a certain area. So there's two females and two males. We all sit with our you know back in all four directions. I was facing the south, and my friend uh, was facing uh, the west, and then the other female, she was facing the north, and then our other gentleman friend, he was facing the east. Well, I we have two flares, my husband and I do, and uh, Quinn was in working in Saudi Arabia, so he was not on this trip. I had traveled down there to be with our friends for four days for this. And I brought my flare up to my eye. It was almost the sun had set probably about 30 minutes before. But again, there was just enough light at the, in the pine trees um, that you had a little bit of color. And I turned my flare on. I We have one that goes from black to white or gray to white, or you can use it in color. And I thought, I'm going to put it on color. So I turned it on color, and I caught eye shine probably about 25 yards out and about eight feet in the air. So my friend to the on facing the west, I told him, I said, I see I shine and just about the time he's turning around and I'm passing my flare to him because he didn't have a flare. He just violently projectile starts vomiting. And I asked him, I said, are you okay? Are you okay? And as a registered nurse, I checked his pulse and he had a tachycardic heart rate in the 160s and his skin became you know clammy diaphoretic um and he just his head sunk down he was almost falling forward prone he was so sick real his, quick i just want to for for some of our listeners and, and, I, and i include myself in this that term that you use can you describe that what what, what is that yeah. Well, it's infrasound. I think he was blasted by infrasound 
And so he was having what we would call a, um, you could call it an adrenaline dump, his heart but, rate. Is right, but you meant you had a term tachycardic heart rate? Tachycardia, T-A-C-H-Y-cardia, C-A-R-D-I-A. So is, he, that a, is that a high heart rate or what is that? Right, uh-huh, above 110. And okay. So he was in the 160s, which is abnormal. You'll see people that are in the fighting and uh, mode, fighting flight mode. It's an adrenaline. You you start a dumpling, adrenaline dump into your bloodstream, and so you're having a physiological response to the hormones being dropped into your bloodstream. And so this is something that can actually your anxiety and maybe if you're dehydrated, yes. I don't know if he was or not, but if you, you know, you combine no. those things together, could yes, that cause this? Under distress or if you're having, you know, a cardiac issue or a hypertension issue, those kind of problems can reflect in those same side effects, the tachycardia, you know, the racing pulse, uh, your skin being cold and clammy, and then switching to the sweating can occur on there. And it just, it's an, an accumulation that kind of cascades from one thing to another. And people uh, can relate to it when they're having panic attacks, anxiety attacks. Uh, when you are a nurse and you're having to do a code Status when someone is uh, heart rate has stopped and you're doing a code blue and you're trying to resuscitate. Well, your body kicks in because you're using all your resources because you want to do the very best when you're doing your compressions, your heart compressions, and when you're doing your rescue breathing and until you can get a rhythmia uh, back uh, to uh, make the person either responsive. And become alert again, or unfortunately, a demise can occur if you can't get their uh, organs to respond to this. And so I told him, I said, are you okay? And everything, and he just kept vomiting and vomiting. And so our other female friend, she finally told him, she says, I think you need to listen to Debbie. I think we need to get you out of here. This is not the ideal place that we need to be at right now. With this happening, and this was, you know, early evening, you know, nine o'clock is in Texas time, nine thirty. It's still kind of semi-light in the late summer because it was in September uh, that this happened. And so we started walking out. Uh, we did not run or anything, uh, and we were using the GPS to go back out because this there was not a trail that we were on. I mean, it's just forced back there. And so we wanted to make sure that we got back to the forest road where we would be orientated so that we could get back to our camp safely. So as we got right up to in exiting the forest and going on to the dirt forest road, there was these two stomps. And that's all I can describe that it happened. Like it, they were signaling, hey, they're leaving. You know, we drove them out. 
And so we, by this time, it was completely dark. And so we had our headlamps on. And I walked with him because I was really concerned because he's like 6'4". And if he went down on me and we knew that we were in the forest about 30 miles, you know, to even a paved road, that we were going to be in trouble. I was like, if, you know, I was trying to eliminate, make sure he wasn't having a heart attack, you know, making sure because I knew he wasn't dehydrated. Because we had all been around. He had not been drinking any kind of alcohol. He was well hydrated. So that's why I believe that he um, suffered infrasound. infrasound directed at him. Well, after we got him back, he got into his tent and he slept pretty much all through the night and got up the next morning and he said he had a severe headache. So I was talking to him out at the campfire and I asked him, I said, have you ever experienced anything like this before? And he told me that the previous year, he in almost the, in the same area we were at, not the exact same spot, he had experienced a similar incident there before, but he didn't get sick at his stomach. He just knew that his heart was racing, that he was sweating and all that. And so he felt like that he was vulnerable in his opinion to infrasound because he had flipped his body around so that he was facing the same way so that I could hand my FLIR to him. So that is just something that I personally have witnessed if it truly is a reaction to infrasound uh, and it can be if I had not been an experienced nurse and had not seen things like this happen with people in critical car accidents, trauma, you know, I might have been overwhelmed, too, by watching this gentleman suffer these side effects. Well, listen, guys, this is you guys just had some really good encounters and good information. I'm glad that we finally got to uh, connect. And um, what I'd like to do is we're about to run, you know, we're about out of time. So I'm going to wrap it up here pretty quick. But you know what fascinates me is that, that cave. So if you guys go back to that cave again, can you do us a favor? Take a picture of, take a few pictures of it. And send those our way. I'd like to see that, yes. you know, from a different lighting, right. uh, light conditions and, uh, you know, different time of year and, and that sort of, and also a far away one. So, you know, a, a distance so we can say, oh, okay, there's the cave up there. Right. I love that he, cave. Yeah, th that truly it for us is if you could have a sighting that where you're not frightened like I was when I was a child versus that's the kind of sighting that you would like to have. Maybe not so many in there because I, not unless they jumped out of the cave and jumped down the side of the mountain 200 feet, they were not going to get to you quick. You that know? was my next question. Are you guys going to get some crampons and ropes and climb up to the cave and check it out? Yeah, because to get up 
that way you would have to have ropes. You just could not climb up because it's too steep. Right. Well, that that was dry humor. I, there's no way. I didn't think you guys would ever go up there. Well, I'm too old. Well, listen, <laughs> Debbie, <laughs> Quinn, thank you guys so much for uh, coming on here. We really appreciate that. Yes. And we'll keep in contact, and, and we'll do that because awesome. you know, we have we have bought this summer up in that where we're going to retire at in the next five years. And uh, so when we go back up, uh, we'll probably go up around Thanksgiving time. We'll take some pictures and try to do some in the early spring, too, uh, so that y'all can have them. Oh, awesome. We really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, well thanks, guys. It's good talking to you, and I'm sure we'll be in touch again absolutely. You know, down the road. Yes, sir. Thank y'all. Thank you. All right, now. you guys have a good one. Good night good. now. All right, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Tom, what do you have got in the way of questions? Well, we have we have a lot of excellent questions. And again, this is a huge shout out to everybody out there who sends in questions. We really appreciate it. You guys keep the show going. And real quick, I just want to say, if you want to support the program, uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash Creek Devil and you can become a Patreon member. Okay, so we got a gentleman here, Tony from Australia. He wants to know, Will, are there any reports that you're aware of of grizzly bears and Bigfoot having a brawl? Well, there were stories of it. I don't know how confirmed they are. There's The one that really sticks in my mind wasn't necessarily a brawl, but there was a story of a couple of guys on a fishing boat. And, and I, I want to say it was on a river, but I can't remember for sure if that was or not. But anyway, two guys, uh, and they see this grizzly. Now, they're fairly close to the shore. I, I think it was a, a river, some kind of a, a channel where it was narrow, uh, so they couldn't get too far away from the shore. And this grizzly comes out, and, and they, they were afraid it was actually going to come and get on the boat. But it stands up, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's sniffing in the air, and it takes off running, just bolts dead away quickly. And moments later, the Sasquatch comes out near where the bear was. And and the two men, of course, are stunned. So it kind of makes you wonder. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily think maybe they're fighting. Uh, more likely the Sasquatch is hunting the bear. But um, um, I, I suppose they might, might have a brawl in the process of the Sasquatch trying to kill the bear. But... I think they dispatch their, their prey pretty quickly. I, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to kind of follow up on that a little bit, just kind of uh, a little speculation. The What is it about the Sasquatch that the bear, he gets a sniff of that, and he's like, I want nothing to do with it. There, there's nothing that I know of <clears throat> that grizzly bears avoid. I, well, I do know they avoid, um, or I've heard that they, they avoid, wolverines mm -hmm. and well, i get that i've seen most, a wolverine once in my life and they're mean yeah most things avoid wolverines so yeah <laughs> because they're nasty <laughs> yeah but, um well you know i mean everybody thinks you know the a grizzly or brown bear is is the top of the food chain 
but then you were talking about a Sasquatch that's an apex predator, so uh, that's a little bit higher on the list. That's probably yeah, why yeah, it, it is probably why it took off. You know, if that, if that I'm just curious. There's got to be something in that odor where the bear's like, I want no, 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 nothing to do with this. I'm gone. Um, well, bears, I just find that interesting. Bears have a really good sense of smell, so you know they can smell things a long ways away, uh, and I'm sure they're well versed in what these things are and what they're out there doing. Right. Yeah, very interesting. They, they don't want to become the ham sandwich. No, no, the bear sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and one other animal I might potentially add. Uh, a little animal, but the skunk. I think they avoid skunks as well for good reason. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> um, so, talking a little bit about, you, you and I were listening to some vocalizations and just talking about those. It seems like, you know, there's an awful lot of people out there that hear these things. But, you know, you... you by the time you get your recorder or your phone out, it's you know it's done. It's just like a sighting. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of people that have called in or spoken with you and said, "Man, I heard this thing. I it had to be a Sasquatch. I don't know what else it could have been." Oh yeah, yeah, quite a few times actually. Yeah, and a lot of times it's a scream that is that undeniable you know starts low and turns into a high-pitched scream and there's there's um, one we got from arizona recently from our guy there you know the very active area that we have going there um and and that's one of those it's kind of a mixed sound part of it and part of it sounds like owl and then it 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 does some it goes it morphs into some other weird noise um you, you know what i'm talking about oh yeah it almost sounds like uh, it morphs into not quite, but it sort of reminded me a little bit of like a gibbon or a howler monkey. Yeah, it, now it doesn't. There's no break in the in the uh, the vocal. It, it's no. doing this continuous, so it sounds like an owl. Then it then it changes into something else while it's making this vocal, and an owl's not going to do that, obviously. And and the interesting part is when we talked to Fred that we had on the show recently, the the native from Alaska. He's got pit bulls, and, and apparently they're they're fairly mean. And I sent him that recording to see what he thought of it. And he played it, and the dogs ran upstairs and dove under the bed. And he says, you know, I had a real tough time getting those dogs out of from under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and again, what was it, you know? I mean, the, the, the recording came from Arizona, friends right. up in Alaska. Right. But there's some message, there's some data, in, for lack of a better word, in that sound. The dogs picked up on it and said, I want nothing to do with it. They certainly did. Um, so we have a question from, I'm not sure where they're from, um, but this is Jim. And he's heard, I believe he's heard you talk about uh, Sasquatch where they will dive under like in a pond or a small lake and they'll be under there for a lengthy period of time do they have good can they hold their breath that long or are they going into a cave or any thoughts on that well that's a good question um i i've i've talked to 
people who say that there's in one particular area um i won't mention the area because the people there don't you know they want their privacy respected so they don't want a bunch of people going there and snooping around but um they said that there are there are a lot of subterranean caves around the lakes in that area and their their belief was that the things were diving in the water and going into these caves um there are plenty of accounts where people have seen them go underwater and you know for an extended time period now whether that's swimming into the water you know or whatever it is they're doing but uh that is what's been reported sure so they must have pretty good lung capacity yeah it's interesting just makes you wonder what's uh what purpose you know to go under those caves are they just going under there to maybe it connects to some subterranean system cave system who knows yeah no idea apparently the area is full has a lot of limestone caves it's you know it's just that type of country ah okay gotcha okay um we have a somebody here and i apologize i'm uh, i'm not even going to try to pronounce the name but it's a-t-i-n-e hein um from south africa and he says on our last show we mentioned a bigfoot yeti in africa and so this person wants to know where do they occur where do they occur um we should ask and I, I think the the question they're asking is what part of Africa have we heard about oh boy that's foot? what I was trying to remember um, I should should look at these questions before we start the recording um, you know we'll have to come we'll have to revisit that with the answer because I don't recall off the top of my head right and you and I talked about it because you had a, a video on it and it was pretty interesting. I, that, want, I want to say it was East Africa, the Ethiopia area, but I, I, you know, don't hold me to that because I, I don't remember for sure. Yeah, I was thinking it was somewhere around there. Um, okay, so I'm going to mark this, and we will come back to this question with an answer. So thank you. And, you know, we don't, folks, we don't always have the answers, and if we don't, we'll let you know. And there yeah, we go. We're, we're not we're not prepping here ahead of time, so <laughs> Tom, Tom is throwing to me throwing the questions to me cold. So um, you know, if I if I don't remember off the top of my head, then we will come back to it and give you the answers. Okay, so now we've got Danny, and Danny says uh, some time ago he said he came across a study um, about the. Uh, just reading this question here, okay. Talking about the forest fires and the unburned areas. So his question is, he wants to know how does this affect, you know, fire and deer, generally speaking, plants and animals that prefer open fields and nutrient-rich soils will benefit soon after wildfires. And while other animals prefer the deep, dark forests, uh, what are your thoughts on post forest fire how does that affect the game and could it affect sasquatch okay um you know i i wouldn't say a lot of these animals prefer open grazing um some because you know that's if you're out in the open you can be seen by predators um you know so when you're out you don't you don't often i mean you do see deer out 
but it's not for extended time periods. So they just kind of, deer, deer will, uh, I can't remember, there's a term for them, what deer do. They don't just stay in one spot and eat. They, they, they'll move and they'll take a bite of this and a bite of that and a bite of something else. That, you know what I mean? As they're moving along. Um, and they have a term for that. And I can't remember what it is offhand. It's, I, I put it in my first book, uh, Notes from the Field. So, um, but anyway, getting back to fires and, and all that. Um, the fires are actually really beneficial for a lot of animals because as you and I saw in your area, Tom, you know, a month or so ago, um, where those areas burnt last year, they're, they're just lush with green leafy plants and, and the animals that eat that stuff, you know, they thrive in that environment after the fires have gone through the areas and then, and then this stuff starts growing again. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It and, and I saw a report on this from the Forest Service how because it was kind of discouraging uh, having these fires. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, this beautiful forest is gone. But it actually does a reset, a kind of a cycle reset on on a whole new ecosystem, which goes through. There's 12 years of you know the little animals, uh, mm-hmm. bobcats and hares, and even the owls and that sort of thing, and then it progresses on. So. Uh, it really brings about almost like an explosion of vibrant life uh, like, back to that area. Yeah, it does. And, and um, you know, that charcoal provides a lot of nitrogen to the soil. So it really, it's just a natural, really good fertilizer. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, we look and say, oh, my God, look what happened to that area. It's awful. But it's it's natural because lightning strikes have been going on forever with forest and and forests burn, but they bounce back with this really abundant life and and uh, you know the plants are the basis for the food chain, so everything else benefits from that. And just a quick comment: um, some of the pine trees actually require fire in order to propagate. Yeah, right. Uh, they've got these. Yeah, they've got those uh, pine cones that are basically like green concrete <laughs> yeah it take, takes the heat to open and, them up yeah it really does it sure does okay so danny wrote us and he says he bought an off-road electric bike for trips and camping and that sort of thing so pretty cool and has a range of about 15 miles so that's excellent he wants to know if there's any ideas uh, uh what are your thoughts as using it for uh, it sounds like what he wants to potentially use it to find these creatures. <clears throat> excuse me. And um, is he putting himself at risk? Uh, well, I wouldn't go alone. Good point. And, and not just because of the creatures, but we talked about it before. You know, there's cougars and, and bear and all kinds of things out there you want to be careful about. So, you know, if you're moving along on a bicycle, you know, it's to those animals, you're, you're like you're running. And, and that kind of triggers a natural response in predators. So you might be chased by something you don't want to be chased by. You know, that's a good point. And I just thought of something. If you're on a motorcycle and it's loud, that might, it's probably a deterrent to something like, uh, you know, a, a mountain lion or, or a pack of wolves or something like that. It, it may be just the sort of thing. But if it's quiet, yeah, you don't have that. So you don't have that in your favor. So, yeah. And and not not only animals, but you know we were taught in in uh, outdoor classes that 
a four-foot fall is fatal in the wilderness. It you, can be, sure. You injure, yeah. You injure your leg or your sprain an ankle. That's a reason in you don't town. Want, yeah, it's a reason you don't want to go alone. Yeah, never never go alone. And so so that's 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 our thoughts on that. Um and then this person wants to know, Jim so we've got a couple of guys named Jim writing it writing into us. He wants to know if the coloration is it is it dependent upon their age or is it dependent upon the region that they live in? That's probably just genetics. Um, I, I don't know that, I mean, nobody knows yet, of course, but for sure. But um, some of it's age because, you know, the juveniles are almost universally reported as jet black. Um, sometimes they retain that color when they're adults. Most often they turn that kind of a cinnamon brown color. Um, but, but there are other, other variations, you know, sometimes they're just brown, sometimes they're, um, gray or white and those are the rarer ones, but, um, you know, so I mean, you know, even in different parts of the country, you know, we get the same, the same reports of coloration. Yeah. And I was just thinking about that because, you know, when we talk to uh, people down in the South, uh, Arkansas and places like that kind of the same thing they see this red creature um so you know ready share okay um here's a guy this is will this is totally up your alley he wants to know um can you comment on using plaster of paris to get a to get a mold and come back to one of the molds with a Bigfoot signature on it. Of course, he's, you know, tongue-in-cheek on that. You know, Bigfoot said, hey, it was me. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so what's he at? So, what do you, so this is a good point to just talk about what's involved with uh, foot casting. You know, oh, how yeah. long does it take? What What's the process? That sort of thing. You know, I'm sure a lot of people, when they think about casting, I, I put it in my Bigfoot Fieldwork 101 book. You know, there, and I put it in a step-by-step process and the kind of things you need. So um, there, there's, a, there's a plug, you know, for my book. Um, but it's there, you know, if, you, if you're interested in that, get the book, and it'll tell you what you need and how to do it. But it's kind of a lengthy process, actually. Uh, most people think, well, you can go out and mix it up, pour it, in the, pour it in the footprint, and, you know, pull it out of the ground, and off you go. It's a little bit more involved in that because... Number one, it's kind of messy. Now, plaster is fairly inexpensive. Um, and you need, for a Sasquatch track, the average is, you, the boxes come, I think, in there. They're just little under five-pound boxes. Um, and it takes one of those per footprint. So, you know, you, you, you want to have, have two or three of those with you. And then you want to have, you know, a few gallons of water because... Uh, and I would recommend, you know, latex gloves because the stuff is, you want to mix it up good with your hands, get all the lumps out of it. Uh, you kind of want it the consistency of, um, oh, geez, you know, kind of thick pancake flour or pancake batter, right? Not the runny stuff, something really thick. <laughs> Not too thick, but, you know, you, you 
I always tell people, you know, practice on your own footprint or animal, you know, the dog's footprints or something ahead of time. That way you can kind of get it down. And then when you pour the print, you got to let it sit for quite a while because nobody told me how to cast the first time I, I did it. I tried it. And unfortunately, you know, I found some nice 15 inch Sasquatch tracks going up this logging road and I went to pull them out and they broke all the pieces because I didn't realize I had to take a knife and actually dig them out. Um, not all soils like that, but, but soils are different everywhere you go, right? Different conditions and settings and all that. Uh, I mean, unless it's just really nice sand and you can lift it out. Um, I always carry a buck knife in my field kit and, uh, you know, I, I let the track set up a couple hours, let them get good and firm. And then I dig down around them and I'll take the whole, you know, dirt and cast and everything. And I'll spend a couple of weeks cleaning it carefully, you know, to make sure that the dirt goes and, you know, like with the rubber dental pick and things like that, you know, just, you know, do a little bit each day until it comes out nice and clean. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the process behind it. Oh, that's interesting. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't realize you'd spent up to it two weeks uh, cleaning. Oh, yeah. After I, I take a dent, I have a dental pick and a toothbrush, you know, and, and you can you can get some little tools. You, you want to be careful not to dig the plaster because there's, there might be details in there you want to save. <clears throat> but those soft cleaning items, you know, work pretty well to... Uh, remove the dirt and as the dirt dries over a couple of weeks it's it comes off much easier because sometimes it's wet you know the soil that you're casting in oh yeah very good point and if it's dry now, this... if it's dry it comes off pretty fast but you know yeah and you've got some excellent uh foot caps i've seen them um now this guy also he has a question that and i like this he's got a kind of a train of thought about while you're waiting for it to set up and dry, you know, he's just wondering about the possibility that Sasquatch is A, watching you, and B, knows what you're up to. And do you really want to stand around somewhere for two hours <laughs> or so? Well, <laughs> I, I've never it. had any problems. Usually what I'll do, though, because it's it's kind of boring to stand around and wait for the – it's like, you know, watching paint dry. It's kind of, a, kind of along those lines, right? You're, you're waiting for the plaster mm -hmm. to dry. And even if it's hot, like here in Northern California, it gets pretty hot in the summers, it still takes quite a while for that stuff to dry good, enough to, to pull it out where you can handle it. Um, oh, and that's another thing. Even if it comes out fairly clean, you don't want to handle it a whole bunch because you can leave your, your fingerprints and stuff in that plaster. So you, that's why you want to let it set up good and, and don't handle it a whole bunch right away. Let it, let it dry for uh, at least a few days. But, um, yeah, I, I'll usually, you know, and e even bear tracks and things like that, you know, I cast those too, and um, I'll pour them and then take off somewhere to some other area and do something for a couple hours, and then I'll come back, and, you know, by that time they're ready to pull out. Yeah, and that was one thing I was curious about where this guy's wondering if, if the creature's watching you. And you take off and you come back and find that it's stomped on your... <laughs> Never had that happen. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, they may watch you, but they're probably thinking, what a nut. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Good point. Um, so just out of curiosity, ballpark, how many casts do you think you've done in your lifetime? Oh, God. I have no idea. Never, Never thought about counting. 
Yeah. Lots, though, right? Oh, yeah. Lots. Um, okay, so this guy, he's talking about episode 139, and I think that was Fred up in Alaska. Uh, 2,000 people go missing, you know, missing Alaska every year. Uh, he wanted to know where does this information come from, and in the last 10 years, that would be 20,000 people have disappeared. I don't know the answer to that. I know that I have heard that Alaska, out of all the states, has an extraordinarily high number of missing people. And I think a lot of that could easily be due to the uh, remoteness of Alaska. I mean, it's it's a very, the population density is very low compared to, to the other 49 states. But also, um, you know, you got planes, uh, you know, you got float planes, you got people hunting, missing, you know, so there's, there could be a wide variety of reasons well, remember and, a friend of ours up there recently said too that um, you know a lot of people go to Alaska because um, either because of their past in the lower forty-eight or or whatever is going on in their lives, and it's a good place for them to start over, and they just kind of drop off the grid, and you know I mean that's all part of those missing people numbers of people just kind of they vanish, but they do it purposely. Right. Right. Um, so that's, uh, anyway, that's, uh, I think this just had a concern about whether the, the stats were accurate. And so I think it would be something that probably is maintained by, you know, the various police departments. Yeah. I'm sure the state uh, probably has statistics on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. But it's, Again, I just want to say that I have heard that Alaska has an extraordinarily large number of missing people compared to the other states. So, and again, that could be for a wide variety of reasons, including I wouldn't put it past to say that our topic is a contributor to that. Yeah, Maybe it's, it's, it's hard telling. Yeah. Um. So that's all right. That, that, very good question. Um, what about? I guess one of the questions that we've had is people want to know where do these creatures? Uh, and I think they're talking about the West Coast here. Where do they reside? Are they kind of up in the mountains, or are you going to find them in the lowlands around, maybe even rural farmlands? Uh, is there any sort of a consensus on that? Well, all of those places. I mean, you got to look where the food is. Wherever there's food, that's where they're going to be. They don't. They don't just live in one kind of place. You know, they they have their ranges and they move around throughout those ranges, and the ranges encompass all those different kinds of places. And we've talked about that in the past. The the one thing that not only Sasquatch but all animals in the wilderness are. Everything revolves around getting your next meal. Right. Yeah, it's not like us where, you know, we set up shop somewhere and that's our home. Um, most wildlife, you know, they, they move about throughout their territories. Yeah, and they're going to they're gonna be nomadic in the sense that if the food source moves, they're going to move. Yeah. And if it's a, you know, top-level predator, uh, they're going to go where the 
prey goes, but the prey is going to go, you know, when it gets real, when the weather gets really bad up in, uh, in the high elevations, I'm assuming they're going to move down to where the food's a little easier to get at the lower elevations. Yeah, sometimes they stay up high, though. And just kind of work their way through the snow and yeah, some, nibble on Some stuff. animals know where to find it under the snow. and Yeah, they're not limited to, you know, being in a place because there's snow on the ground. Yeah. Um, so this gentleman, Chris, wants to know, he said, uh, he want, he's looking for areas up in uh, New York and in Pennsylvania. He's wanting to know if we could give him some um, areas where the sightings have been and, and any areas where the actual Bigfoots are located. Oh, boy, everybody wants to go become a ham sandwich. Um, <laughs> uh, the Adirondacks, and I don't have a specific place there. That's where Jeremiah talked about, you know, where he lived up in, in that region and other people we've had on, too. Um, that area is, is said to be, you know, pretty active with the creatures. I say that area, I don't know. I don't know exactly how big that area is. Um you know, you'd have to go there and just, you know, pick an area and start working it. Yeah, exactly. And and again, it's, uh, you know, Will, I've said it tongue-in-cheek in the past, but the some of the areas that have been most productive for me are areas where I knew they're not. <laughs> yeah. I, I told my buddy, you know, he was like, we were in one area and we and countered some pretty significant evidence and he was like don't ask i'm not coming back and so i said all right well listen we're going to go to an area where they're not okay great and will you and i were at that area about a month and a half ago yep, that's right <laughs> plenty of sign so, in there yeah you just never know the one thing i would say and i've never been to uh i've been up and down the east coast but i have for whatever reason i've not been to new york I'm going to guess you're not going to find him particularly on Wall Street, so I wouldn't worry about that. I'm just going out on a limb here. But. <laughs> well, that's that's in southern New York, so we're talking the Adirondacks. That's in northern New York. Yeah, yeah, upstate New York. Uh, <laughs> so um, what do you recommend for audio recording? I know you you've do mention it in your book, Bigfoot 101, or the 101 Field Guide. Um, because that's actually, a, you know, that's a significant thing. That's something that anybody can do is get a, even a cheap audio recorder. Oh, yeah. What are your thoughts on how to approach that? Uh, I just went and bought one of those little, and I think you did too, little Sony um, digital recorders. Mm-hmm. You know, get one of those and keep it in your pocket. Yeah, and I I got one of the little cheapy recorders. I stuck in a tree for uh, half a weekend and got some pretty good results with that. Yeah, it's not too difficult to do something like that. I mean, I, I don't know what you get, but... Yeah, just... Uh, um, here's something. Bear in mind, uh, if it's going to be outside in the elements, it's probably even if it's in the summertime, especially in the summertime. Actually, 
if it's going to be a hot day, you're going to get dew in the morning. Mm -hmm. So it's going to get moisture. You've got to keep that in mind. Yeah, something if you could get something that's kind of kind of weatherproof. Yeah, I, I'd recommend just research, you know, the little audio recorders and think about the environments they'd be in if you're going to leave it out. Yeah, exactly. And actually, kind of the philosophy that I had was I bought some cheapy ones online, which had okay um, recording audio quality, but I used the cheapy ones. It, for that very reason, I thought, well, hey, listen, if it rains and it destroys the the digital, uh, the digital voice recorder, I can at least retrieve the SIM card out of it. Right, and you're, and, you're not out too much either. Yeah, exactly. I was, you know, it was like seventeen bucks, something like that. So um, that's that's another food for thought. Cameras, that's a different story, but we'll get into that at another time. Um, what are your thoughts on this? This came a while back, but somebody wanted to know about if they wanted to go hunting Bigfoot with a pack of dogs. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Uh, in all the cases I know of, were well, I should say not all of them. There was one. Um, the sheriff of Skamania County back in the late 60s, they had some tracks and they, they brought some dogs in. And they, now, I, I should preface this by saying it didn't, the story didn't say the dogs tracked or followed or did anything with the tracks. They had the tracking dogs, but they were in the snow, so they were able to follow the tracks. But any other time that dogs have been used in places, uh, the dogs won't track them. Is it that the dogs refuse or they're incapable yeah, they, of it? They refuse. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, the dogs the dogs won't go after them. Right. Well, I, I think about Todd up in California. We interviewed him a couple of years ago, and he had a dog that would go after bear, no problem. It would go after mountain lions, no problem. It came into proximity of these things, and it <clears throat> hid under the truck. <laughs> and he said once he finally got the dog back home that dog would never get back into that truck ever again that's even my own dog you know when i had my first sighting um that dog I, i've never seen him act like that you know before that time or after that. that that was a singular event and he would had nothing to do with it <laughs> didn't you send um your friend john wanted to go home and you said hey take willie with you yeah because he didn't want to go by himself right and isn't that the time that he encountered uh like a deer that had its head twisted back 180 degrees yeah exactly like a corkscrew he said yeah and was willie acting did he said he he, said, he said he acted really weird around it yeah it's like the dog knew something. It's like, no, nah, this isn't good. And that place, that was probably, probably, geez, a hundred yards or so from where I had that, that encounter, you know, where they, where he found that deer. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't really far. Oh, that's, that's nothing for, I mean, that's like a five second stroll practically for these things. Oh, yeah. Literally. Oh, yeah. 
what about the time uh, frame? How, you know, from when you saw to this, what was it, a year? Yeah, maybe a year. Probably that, roughly that time of year to also. Because I, I remember John and I, neither one of us used that trail anymore. That fact, like, that was, I wouldn't go up there before that time, and that was his last time he used it. <laughs> we we, right? we wouldn't go out there anymore, either one of us. Yeah. Well, and then you had talked about you had walked somewhere, and there's some blackberry bushes that got violently shook. Oh, that was going up the same way. Yeah, we our neighbors across the street had this long driveway that went went up this kind of sloped upwards, and and at the top of it, if you went to the left, that's where their house was, and we went to the right, and and that's where in in the direction of John's house, and that's where the woods were. So. That's where the beginning of our trail was. So I was headed up. In fact, that was the last time I, I decided I wasn't going up through that woods anymore. Um, I walked up that. It was about halfway up their driveway. It was a, kind of a long driveway. And there was a bunch of blackberries uh, right at the edge of the tree line there. Because it was all open pasture on one side, and then it was a tree line on the other where the forest was. And this big patch of blackberries, and it was fairly tall. And it just shook violently, and there was a growl behind it. And I just kind of turned around and went right back to my house. And I, I said, nope, that ain't happened. Never again. Now, I can't that say. That was the last time? I, I can't say. I, I know for sure what it was. But, you know, I've been pretty close to bear and never heard anything growl like that. Then it was it was fairly loud, and it was, you know, really deep. Yeah, I've I've encountered a bear one time where um, I think I scared it as as much as it scared me, and it really scared me. But it just kind of roared and took off up the hill, yeah, yeah. and that's always been my encounter with black bears. Is you usually see their butt as they're running away. Oh yeah, and, and I know it wasn't a cat. It wasn't that kind of a growl, um, and, and whatever it was made made the this big bunch of blackberries shake violently. Yeah. So I just thought, nope, I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm not going to push the envelope on this one. I, I was pretty sure what it was, even though I didn't see anything. I mean, it was, you know, in my mind, I mean, it was close, very close to where I had the encounter. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, John found the deer just, uh, just past that a ways. It wasn't that far. It was, I think he was, he must have been fairly... Um, I don't think he was inside that forest that far when he found the deer. Wow. That's what blew me away was I took a look at that area that you grew up in and it really, you weren't out in the middle of the wilderness. Not really. It was, no. it was, it wasn't quite rural suburbs. It was rural farmland, but it was not like what I would think of that would immediately come to mind for Bigfoot country. Well, I mean, there were there was enough plenty of forest around the area. Uh, you know, the the farm farms are kind of patchwork. Of course, when you look at it now, it's different now than it was back then. But um, they had the the railroad line came down out of the mountains, and and they I, I think they followed that railroad line down, and also the river, the Puyallup River. Um, both of those features come out of the same general direction, so. Uh, and that's what John Green discovered. You know, I told him what I thought, where the creatures were coming down, down every year. 
and he told my told my parents while I was in Europe that um, that I was dead on that that he'd done some research of the area with sightings and all that, and and what I said held up. He said he 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 said that uh, that I was correct about you know my assumption about how they were moving back and forth. Well, and again, it goes back to the food source and. <clears throat> You mentioned something that I hadn't heard before. You mentioned it kind of recently with with your original sighting and that you had um, apple trees in the yard that were seasonal. You know, you had year-round, you know, different types, different varieties that would produce apples year-round. Well, not year-round, but they would they would produce like, you know, normal apples. I think when they produced, they, they'd ripen around August or so. And then there was another, there were like three different varieties, and they would they would ripen at different times, and there was one that was a winter apple. So there was apples, you know, that were were coming into their own. I think around December or so. So there was there was stuff there, and and, and our barn was right out there by that tree line too. It was right right there, where, um, geez, it was maybe maybe a hundred feet from the tree line, you know, where I had the sighting, and uh, I you know. It was all open on one side, so there was all the, the the animal food was right there, and it was available. So, well, it, I can't help but wondering how many times. I just bet that wasn't the first time they were there. It was just the first time you spotted them. I can't help but wondering if they hadn't actually been raiding your barn in the past successfully. Oh, they could have been sure. And we never stealing known. apples. Yeah, we'd have never known. Right. We weren't checking for apples and stuff like that, you know. And you probably had significant windfall where the apples are just sitting there on the ground. And, oh, yeah. and not just apples. We had a pear tree out in the field and a couple of cherry, big cherry trees. And, you know, there was there was plenty of fruit well, out there. And we had a big garden. You know, I got a chuckle out of this because we have an apple tree in our backyard and then the windfall comes. And, you know, you try to keep up with it, but it's just it's an awful lot. And so the apples ferment, and we get critters in the backyard. You hear them at two in the morning, eating these fermented apples, and then they, they, you know, I'm sure that's what they're interested in. Oh sure, but yeah, there was. I mean, the the patchwork woods were were pretty large. I mean, there was right next to us. There was a ten acre tract that was mostly forest, and that's where the creatures were. And then on the across the the road little two-lane road and there were only you know half a dozen or so families that lived there in that area so uh, there was another big stand of forest over there and you know i mean it was it was rural enough like i said i've said before where i, I remember being shocked and you know going out one morning in the back of our house and looking in the pastures and there were elk there was a big bull elk eating you know grazing with the cattle <laughs> You know, so, and, and coyotes had come up right near the mailbox, and there was plenty of animals around there. Well, and you had a story where, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I think basically you came home, and the cows were acting strange, and your mom brought it to your attention? Oh, that was, that was before. That was when I was probably about 10 years old or so. Uh, that was in the place we lived at before. Uh, the one where we had the where I had the sighting, but it wasn't that far oh, okay. away. That was only four. It was only four miles away as the crow flies. 
Okay, and again, that's chump change yeah. for these guys. And it's it was, nothing. And the Puyallup River ran, we had 40 acres there, and the Puyallup River ran through our property. So we had 30 acres on, on one side that where we lived and then another 10 on the other side. But So the river ran right through our property, and, uh, and the creatures followed that river down every six months. So just kind of uh, refresh uh, for for. Th- people that haven't heard that story what was it that was going on that and why was it that it caught your attention or your mom's attention well with the cattle and it was before actually before that was the incident with the kid you know on the rock what he called the rock quarry monster and and for people who haven't heard that um and i i've tried to research you know anybody who might have known used that term i don't even know where the term the kid mentioned it and he was a kid about my age and, and we lived in a little town, and, you know, there was maybe 1,500 people lived in that area at that time. You know, this was in the 60s. So it wasn't a big population. And um, there were three three homes on this road we lived on, and we lived at the very end, and it was a dirt road. <laughs> so if you think there are any dirt roads in Washington State, there there were. In fact, there still is. That area is still the same. Um so we lived at the very end of that, and you couldn't see the other two homes from our place because our, our driveway was very long, and it went, made a turn and went around. You know, there was a stand of trees where you couldn't see through that. But anyway, we were watching TV this one evening, and it's like this was probably, you know, 1968 or 69 time frame, and uh, I happened to see this light because there weren't any lights out there. <laughs> you know, it was dark. And uh, I think we, we, had that, we had this one big pole out kind of by our driveway, just out from the house that had a, had a big light on it. But that was the only light in the area back there, um, other than, you know, from the house. But looking down, you know, across this one open area to, uh, um, let's see, the road looped around. And, and so where the tree line stopped, where you could see, you could see where our driveway went and then you couldn't see anymore because of trees. I saw this light coming and I said, Hey, told my mom, I said, Hey, I see a, a light out there. And I, I said, it's not going very fast. So, you know, couldn't be a car, but it wasn't somebody walking either, you know, so it was kind of in between. So we, we waited a bit and then this pounding on the door, right? So my, my mom opens the door and this kid was, a, who was about my age, just was just freaking out. And she got him to come in and got him to calm down. She says, what, you know, well, I didn't recognize the kid. I mean, I, I would have known any kid my age in the area. So he was from out of the area. And um, he said he was just scared to death. He said he saw the rock quarry monster try to catch him. And we're like, what? What are you talking about, you know? And he said this big, he thought it was a man. He, was, he got on the wrong road. He was out riding his bike after dark. And... Uh, that was his light on the bike that we saw. And, uh, you know, so he says he, he, he was riding along trying to you know, find his way back, apparently. And he thought he saw this man coming. And then when he got closer, it was this big, hairy, white thing. And it was he thought it was coming after him. So he took off running or on the bike and riding, and he ended up, ended up in our house. <laughs> so... Uh, my dad come out from the bedroom, his bedroom and asked him what his name was. And he figured out who's, he was visiting his grandparents, uh, not that far from where we lived. 
And uh, so he, he took him back. And then when he came back, I heard my, my mom ask him, you know, you know, what's what's this rock quarry monster thing? And he says, ah, I think it's just some some hermit that's hanging around the rock quarry. And my dad worked for the county, so they had a they had a, uh, a rock quarry just above where we lived, just maybe a mile away. And uh, that's where they quarried granite rock for the, they lined the rivers for flood control back in those days. So uh, that was last we heard of that. And then, you know, later I was out riding my bike, you know, this one summer day and and I have pictures of that place, and you can see in the pictures just how really super thick the foliage is around that area. And and anybody who's had cattle knows that in you know in pastures they have kind of their routines where they are at certain times of the day, right? And ours normally would be way down, you know, away from the house and barn and everything. This was early afternoon. And I come riding up, and my mom and two of my sisters were out there, and, and my mom says, come over here and take a look at this. What do you think? And and I looked out, um, all the cows were in the barn with their heads sticking out and their ears out, you know, really at attention looking at the tree line. And down at the tree line, and it wasn't, you know, maybe, oh, I don't know, two, three hundred feet away, you know, from the barn was the edge of this tree line. And something big was at the edge of the tree line, just thrashing the trees. You couldn't see it, but you know, it was really making a ruckus. And and I said, "Geez, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I said maybe the bear's back, the one that you know I came face to face with out there." And and we just kind of let it drop. But you know, looking back, you know, with things I experienced later, just a, a few miles away, it it had to be one of these things, you know. It, you know, yeah. It, how many how many bears? Yeah, in bo- thrash a tree in, in both in both those situations, and I hadn't seen any bear tracks after after confronting the bear. You know, and it was the bear was there probably a year. We lived back there four years, so I don't know a year or two before that. We hadn't been there very long, and I ran, my sisters and I ran into the bear. But um, you know, we I went with my dad and and one of her family friends and one of my uncles and they, they hunted it. They, the guy from town came in, had hunting dogs and they, I think they scared it so bad it never came back there. But, uh, I never, you know, they, they showed me the tracks and they said, you know, this is, this is how you, you know, something like this is in the area. Keep an eye out, you know, watch the ground. My dad was pretty good about teaching me those things, you know, about watching the ground and learning signs, uh, when things are around. So, uh, I never saw any bear tracks again after that. So, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, it couldn't have been a bear. Well, yeah, and, the, and looking back on it, you know, I can still, I can still visual, visually, you know, see it in my mind, um, how that was being thrashed. I mean, and I've heard, you know, talk to witnesses talk about seeing these things do that, where they saw the creature came in, you know, and then grabbed the trees and did that, and it, and and it was reminiscent of that. Yeah. Well, buddy, fight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Same. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> you know, talking about the bears, though, it, it cracked me up when you did what you weren't supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if Which is what kids do, right? Yeah, my, I was one of those kids. If my parents said, "Don't do this," that's exactly what I was going to do. <laughs> right. And you had your sister with you, right? My two younger sisters. Yeah, I've got five sisters, so my two younger ones, two younger and three older, so the two younger ones were in tow, you know, and we were going to go uh, build a raft. And uh, a friend of my dad's had some, I think he had 300 beehives. 
had 12 of them back there in, in the woods by the swamp. And the swamp bordered the river. And uh, the others were out on another piece of the of our 40 acres or ways away from there. So, But apparently the bear knew where these 12 were. And uh, I was getting ready to go down the trail where, you know, the, the swamp was. We were going to build the raft. And, and the bear was about five feet in front of me coming up the trail. And I just yelled, bear, run. And we all run like hell, you know. And... <laughs> The bear didn't care about the kids. It wanted the honey. Right, which is good for you guys. It was, yeah, thankfully. <laughs> uh, no, that just cracks me up. Though. It's like, it's, not that I ever did anything like that, but I've heard stories of other kids who do <laughs> what they're not supposed to do, <laughs> told not to do. <laughs> yeah, my parents quit telling me not to do things because they figured it out pretty quickly that's exactly what I was going to do, so... <laughs> Right, you never thought of it beforehand until... Yeah, yeah. if they would have said, oh, don't do this, I thought, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that. Right, I think I'll go find <laughs> so, out why. Yeah, they quit, quit putting those ideas in my head. <laughs> but the other thing that I found interesting, and I, I don't know which of the two houses it was, but you, know, you, you said your sister really gave you grief, and I think it was when you guys first found the footprints, right? Yeah, the, that was in Graham. Yeah. Yeah, and they just, they really sound like they're pretty merciless. Oh, they were, yeah, we, you know, with seven kids, we were all pretty tough on each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, they, they raked me over the coals pretty good on that one. But one of them, years later. Oh, the one who was the worst about it. Yeah, she had her own sighting. Oh, I didn't know she was the worst. Okay, so that was. Oh, Yes. <laughs> So it worked out fine. <laughs> we're we're actually pretty good friends, you know. But back then, it was you know you're you're at each other all the time and. Yeah, yeah. And what was it? it was like 1980 or something when she was driving or it was, what was the... it was wasn't wasn't long after my mom passed away. Was was in 81, and she was pregnant with her first child. So uh, my brother-in-law went to hang out with the guys or we're going to do, I don't know, watching a football game or something. So she didn't want to be home for that. So she went to visit one of her other sisters and apparently, you know, she was going to stay the night, I think, and then decided not to. So she was heading back and it's, she was driving through the area where we grew up and it was in a, under the street light. Um, there, there's a, the place is called thrift. There used to be just a store on a corner. It's gone. And there used to be a feed store across the street that's also gone. And there's just a, a bunch of changes in that area. But back then there was not a whole lot of anything there. And and this was only, geez, maybe a half a mile from where I had my sighting. And uh, she came driving down this hill, was going to make the left turn and head out to where they lived. And this thing was right on the shoulder of the road. And she went right by it and it, should, it was kind of you know, kind of jumping up and down like it was like it was really agitated. Oh, it wasn't just standing there. Oh, no, no, it was it was doing this, you know, this behavior, and, and it really freaked her out. And it took her years, I mean, a long time to, to tell me what she saw. In fact, wow. it still shakes her up quite a bit. Wow! I was gonna have wow. her gonna have her write it out, you know, because she won't she won't talk about it, um, and and she hasn't been able to actually sit down and write it out either. Just because it's traumatizing. Just, Very traumatic, yeah. Yeah, 
Well, it's it's weird, you know. It's a you got to it's something that's like you said. It's outside of most people's frame of reference. And what do you do with that? I, I think she was afraid to tell me because it would have been an "I told you so" moment after the raking over the coals about the footprints. But <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't going to do that because I I know what people go through. You know, having been yeah. through it myself, you know, being in front of one of these things or two of them actually. Well, you know, I, I think about that when you first, and by the way, we got a question here for you, um, which is dovetails into all this. Uh, this is a question for Will and your first close encounter. When the second one came up from the right rear flank, how close did it get to you when it walked up to the one that was in front of you? It was probably less than 10 feet. It wasn't a long way. I always, for some reason, you know, like seven feet always kind of sticks in my mind. I don't know if it was seven feet or not, but it was, it was, it was less than 10. And, and I'll tell you. And at what, uh, what point did you realize it's another one? Because when it's behind you and it's making noise, are you wondering what's making noise or did you just well, know it? Was it didn't, it things? didn't make noise for a long time. I, I heard some noise, like just the, the noise of it emerging f for, through the brush there. Mm -hmm. And it was it was that quick. It it just and that's what caught my attention was, it was just the noise of it coming out out of from behind the brush there, and then it took a couple of steps and it was by the other one. And at that by that time I didn't didn't take a lot of time to process. It was this is okay. That's beyond the point. This is the oh crap moment. I'm out of here. <laughs> I I had already been traumatized by the first one. It was there. When the second one came, that was it. it. There was no more, no more thinking. I'm out of here. That was all there was to it. And did you wonder if they're following you? Oh yeah, or? I was. I was hoping like hell they weren't. I was thinking, shoot, they're going to be breathing down my neck any second. <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't. And and what gets me is if that was me, if I was in your shoes, and then you you have to walk in the house and play it cool and not let your sisters know. Oh, I knew. Oh yeah, she. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'd have been all over me. And and so, you know, you, you, you're freaked out, and then you, you just kind of walk in the house and act nonchalant or what? Well, you know, I, I've always been pretty good at, at being, being kind of cool under fire, so to speak. Um, I, I'll, I'll work through a situation, and then when it's over and done, then I might, you know, let myself react emotionally about it, but you know, when it's happening and, and you saw me in the field. Oh yeah. That's the way I work. I, I just, I, I'm, you know, analytical and dealing with things as they happen. And then later, you know, it's like my mind says, all right, you don't have time for this nonsense. You got to deal with this. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it was. And I, I figured, geez, I, you know, I can't say nothing. I got to call John. John was my outlet. <laughs> you know, I, I had to tell somebody. And, and, I, yeah. and I knew John would understand, so I called John. And he says, "Okay, let's let's all meet. Let's go out there and see what we can find." And, and you know what? I I can just imagine. I mean, it's like, you know, you're a teenager. It's like we got monsters in our woods. Yeah, We're that's what go we thought. Check this out. That's what we thought. Yeah. Well, you know, when we found the footprints, that was we're like real monsters out here. Holy cow! You know, <laughs> and and you know, John and I, we were. And his brothers were out looking. Didn't see anything until I had that encounter. Yeah. And then the Clark Ranch was 
after that encounter, right? right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and that was another one of those holy cow moments. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> that was that was a a night of underwear changing moments. <laughs> right now, was it after the Clark Ranch that you and your two buddies were walking down that um, that pipeline oh, access no, no, road? No, no. That night? was before. That was oh okay. See, my I had my first encounter. That was in the fall of seventy four. Dehinnon and Green came in the summer of seventy five. So, you know, it was less than half or, or roughly half a year after the sighting. Well, if it was to say October, and then probably they were there probably July or August, uh, the following July or August, and then right after they left. Uh, I'd say a week or two after they left, that's when John and I and his brother Jeff went out there and had that little, little fiasco. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I've off, I've often thought about that. I mean, it's like seeing some eyeballs, big eyeballs, about eight feet up. They walk away and then they change their mind and come back. Well, you know, we didn't we didn't expect really to see anything. I mean, we were looking, and, and I guess in the back of my mind, because you know those guys came down from Canada and it, they were you know the big shots and you know and when I was there with them in the camp and now with DeHinden and and Dennis Gates at night, you know, walking the roads searching, you know, I knew that these guys, you know, they knew what they were doing, and they, you know, and they were in these books and did all this stuff. I thought, crap, we're going to run right into these things out here. And uh, thankfully that didn't happen. But, uh, um, you know, lo and behold, they when, when they all left and we went out there, there they were, or at least one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just cracked me up when you're like, oh, it's going away from us. And then. It stopped. Oh no, it's not. It stopped. Well, that's what that's what freaked me out. It, it we could hear it run really clearly. You know, boom, 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 boom. You know, across from our right to our left, right in the other tree line, and then it stopped. And I thought, oh God, it's going to come back. <laughs> and and that's what I said. Okay, let's go back to the car. Let's do it orally. Don't run. We took three steps. Broke into a panic. <laughs> we. We got back to the car, you know, and it's like if you've seen Poltergeist from, you know, the early 80s, you know, where they're in the car and they're, they got the keys and they're, they're freaking right. out. And that was John. John couldn't get the keys in the key in ignition. And I'm like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. He gets the car fired up. He throws it in gear and goes peeling out. And his brother's locked outside the car. We've totally ignored him. <laughs> oh, you know. You know what would be interesting is – Getting back to the kid on the bicycle that came up to your parents' house, mm -hmm. I wonder where that guy is today and what he's doing because he saw one of these things. Good question. You know, so I, if you were a kid years ago and you had that experience, uh, get a hold of us. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had neighbors. Like I said, there were there were two other homes. There was an older lady, and I went to school with the grandson of the of the lady who lived there. And then there was another a family that lived down, and they had blue. I always remember because they had these big, uh, uh, like a blueberry farm, you know. And I was contacted because I mentioned something about it 
either in a blog or on, on one of these shows or, or a show. And so I got contacted by one of their relatives of that family. And I think it was somebody who actually grew up there. And um, they had never heard the rock quarry monster term. So I'm not sure where the kid got that. If he made it up, I have no idea. Well, it kind of makes sense. I mean, it was a monster and it was in the rock quarry. Well, what about the guy on the Columbia River, the kid that you talked to? It was a, a rock quarry. You know where the thing came charging at him? Did the bluff charge? Oh no no no! That wasn't that a rock no, quarry. No no that was that was a logging landing. Oh okay okay. Well, I thought it was. A I, rock quarry. I think it's just because the rock quarry was relatively close to that spot. I mean, there was a trail that went up up the ridge above uh, the the family that had the blueberries. There was a ridge up there, and it held us big hilltop, and and above that there was a rock quarry. So. I think that's the only reason it was called that. But, you know, I've gotten some really good sightings, you know, from people in that area, you know, since then, of course. But um, so there was a lot going on around that area. Uh, and that's the town of Ording in Washington. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff. A lot of people, you know, it takes many years for people sometimes to come out with stories, you know, to be willing to talk about them. So you still hear from people in that region. Things trickle. Who've had encounters. Things trickle in once in a while, yeah. Oh, okay. Or like my brother-in-law, he'll he'll know people that, that I knew the names in high school, but I didn't know the people. We, we ran in different circles, so. Mm-hmm, um, right. You know, he'll say, oh, yeah, you, you know who so-and-so is. And I say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I know who that is. And he said, oh, yeah, they had, they saw this thing on their property back when we were in school. You know, but they won't talk about it. So uh-huh. I'll, get, I'll get stuff like that occasionally too. So really, you put all that stuff together, and it paints a much, much bigger picture of what's really going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. In that area, and you and I have talked about historic precedents. So there. these creatures may have a long, long history. And, you know, people just happen to move into their territory. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. I mean, especially, you know, they, they come through that area and they go down to the South Hill area of Puyallup. That's where the Puyallup Screamer stuff was going on in the early 70s. And, uh, of course, that area. And I didn't realize just how large that area was until they logged it all and put these huge uh, tracks of houses in there now. But that was a really, really big area. So they had a lot of country in there to hang around in. Well, and that's the thing I want to say for folks that haven't been to Washington State is uh, every time I've been up there, it's where you got I-5, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Seattle and Tacoma and all that. But you get outside either side of I-5 and it doesn't take long at all. And you are just in absolute wilderness. And, and I can tell you, you know, when I was a kid in the 60s that, um, you know, a little kid, there were places like... Um, and people from that area will know Voight's Creek, and there's a salmon uh, fish hatchery there. Well, I can't remember if it's up or downstream at the moment, but uh, we used to go there occasionally. You know, Voight's Creek would be just packed full of salmon. I mean, you know, you talk about the old saying, people say, oh, it's so thick you could walk across them and not get your feet wet. Right. That used to be that thick with salmon. 
And I mean, you could reach, it, it was not a very deep creek in that place. And you could, could have literally reached that, walked out there, you know, maybe knee deep in the water and grab salmon if you wanted to. And of course, these things know So there's, there was a, a heck of a food supply everywhere. Lots of food, lots of different kinds of food. Right. You know, and dairies in the area, there was all kinds of stuff there. Yeah. Well, and fish is a great nutrient source. Sure it is. I mean, it's packed with nutrients. Well, we're getting low on time, Tom. Did you have any more questions or should we wrap up this segment and move on to the next one? I think we're ready to wrap it up. I want to, again, I want to thank everybody for your excellent questions. And again, if you like the program, just click the subscribe button and give us a like. And then if you really want to subscribe us, you can also support us. You can also go to Patreon forward slash Creek Devil and become a Patreon. Yeah, we get, we wandered, we wandered around a little bit there, but that's what we do sometimes with this segment. All right, folks. Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, I'm working on a current project. I won't say what it is right now, but I need all the questions about Bigfoot you can possibly come up with. Uh, and if you'd send those to me, I'd really appreciate that. You can send it either uh, to the website to Tom, uh, you know, or myself at williamjevening at re- uh, yahoo.com or wjevening at gmail.com if you want to send them directly to me. But I can use all the questions you can get to me. So having said that, folks, um, we're going to take a short break and stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome. These are a series of five stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, William Rowe's Sworn Affidavit. I, W. Rowe, of the city of Edmonton, in the province of Alberta, make oath and say, one, that the exhibit A attached to this, my affidavit, is absolutely true and correct in all details. Sworn before me in the city of Edmonton, province of Alberta, this 26th day of August, A.D. 1957. Signed, William Rowe. Witnessed by W.H. Clark, Assistant Claims Agent, number D.D. 2822. Exhibit A. Ever since I was a small boy back in the forest of Michigan, I have studied the lives and habits of wild animals. Later, when I supported my family in northern Alberta by hunting and trapping, I spent many hours just observing the wild things. They fascinated me. But the most incredible experience I ever had with a wild creature occurred near a little town called Titwan Cache, British Columbia, about 80 miles west of Jasper, Alberta. I had been working on the highway near Titwan Cache for about two years. In October 1955, I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came in sight of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly near that spot the year before. This one was only about 75 yards away 
but I didn't want to shoot it, for I had no way of getting it out. So I sat down on a small rock and watched, my rifle in my hands. I could see part of the animal's head and the top of one shoulder. A moment later, it raised up and stepped out into the opening. Then I saw it was not a bear. This, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly toward me. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near three hundred pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair. But as it came closer, I saw by its breasts that it was a female. And yet, its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms, and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionately than a man's, about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in, within twenty feet of me, and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. The shape of this creature's head somewhat resembled a negro's. The head was higher at the back than at the front. The nose was broad and flat. The lips and chin protruded farther than his nose, but the hair that covered it, leaving bare only the parts of its face around the mouth, nose, and ears, made it resemble an animal as much as a human. None of this hair, even on the back of its head, was longer than an inch, and that on its face was much shorter. Its ears were shaped like a human's ears, but its eyes were small and black like a bear's, and its neck also was unhuman, thicker and shorter than any man's I had ever seen. As I watched this creature, I wondered if some movie company was making a film at this place, and that what I saw was an actor made up to look partly human and partly animal. But as I observed it more, I decided it would be impossible to fake such a specimen. Anyway, I learned later there was no such company near that area, nor, in fact, did anyone live up Micah Mountain, according to the people who lived in Tetuancash. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent, for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still in a crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. For a moment it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that, if I shot it, I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant, hairy creature that lives in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claim are still in fact alive today, 
Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning his head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Just as it came to the other patch of brush, it threw its head back and made a peculiar noise that seemed to be half laugh and half language, and which I can only describe as a kind of a whinny. Then it walked away from the small brush into a stand of lodgepole pine. I stepped out into the opening and looked across a small ridge just beyond the pine to see if I could see it again. It came out on the ridge a couple of hundred yards away from me, tipped its head back again, and again emitted the only sound I had heard it make. But what this half-laugh, half-language was meant to convey, I do not know. It disappeared then, and I never saw it again. I wanted to find out if it lived on vegetation entirely, or ate meat as well, so I went down and looked for signs. I found it in five different places, and although I examined it thoroughly, could find no hair or shells of bugs or insects, so I believe it was strictly a vegetarian. This ends the reading of story number one, William Rose, Sworn Affidavit. Story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. My first incident with a creature I could not explain was in summer of 1966. Our family traveled south down the Oregon coast. We crossed over into California, and Dad drove down past Crescent City. We drove back inland toward I-5. There were five of us in the car. Dad, Mom, my older brother, who was 16, myself, then 15, and my younger brother, who was 13. We spent the night in Dunsmuir, California. The place we stayed in had small cabins and was west of I-5. I do not know the name of the place. There were several cabins, maybe 10 to 12 of them, and a caregiver operator's home. The people working there were a couple in their late forties. They had three large dogs that were shepherd mix. The dogs were very friendly as my brothers and I played with them, throwing a tennis ball. It got dark early due to the thick forest and trees in the area. About 2 a.m. I awoke to the sounds of dogs whining. The dogs were chained up at the house of the caretakers. A mercury vapor lamp was lighting up the area between the house and our cabin. I believe the distance to be about 60 yards. I could see the dogs by the porch area of the house. They were whimpering and huddled together. I could see they were afraid, and looking out near an outbuilding or garage, I looked towards where they were looking and saw in the street area a huge hair-covered creature walking. It was at least eight feet tall and had long arms. It was just strolling on the small street, then into the woods. I was stunned. I did not know what it was, and I went back to bed, but did not sleep the rest of the night. Next morning the caretaker said something spooked his dogs, 
as they refused to leave the house after he fed them in the morning. I knew nothing of Bigfoot, and did not want to say anything about what I had seen. The next year my parents bought property in Ashford in Echo Valley. We spent lots of time up there. Dad had a small sixteen-foot trailer, and the kids slept in a large tent. We saw elk and deer walk through our property all the time. We would also see them in the meadow area, where there were several apple trees. The elk would pick them off the tree, and the deer seemed to feed off whatever dropped from the tree. In the late 70s, we heard weird howling from across the Nisqually River. One night, we heard a very loud scream from down by the river. It sounded like a high-pitched woman's scream. Next morning, several people in the place commented about the screams. I, by then, had heard of Bigfoot, and I believed that it was what I had saw in California. I was down at the river, once collecting rocks to circle the fire pit, and I heard grunting from across the river. I left right away, not bothering to take the rocks. In about 1982, a large group of our friends were camping on the property in an old army tent. My younger brother was sleeping next to the tent sidewall. His girlfriend was next to him, and several others were in the tent. He was startled awake when a large, hairy hand reached under the sidewall and grabbed his arm. He yelled, and everyone was awakened. He was so shook up, he armed himself, built up the fire, and locked himself in his truck. He was in his late twenties at the time, and was out of the army. After that, I only went there on day trips, and never camped there again. I know that there are Bigfoot creatures. I have heard them, seen them, smelled them. I don't hunt or fish, or go on my own up in the area unless I am armed. Talk to the people in Echo Valley, and ask them what they have seen or heard. This ends story number two, My First Encounter by William Jevning. Story number three, Introducing British Columbia's Hairy Giants by J.W. Burns. The name Sasquatch was coined in the 1920s by J.W. Burns, though what is believed to be a mispronunciation of an Indian word, and for the most part is used primarily to describe our Canadian cryptid. Many indigenous peoples have varying terms for the wild ones and the forest fathers, but it was through J.W. Burns's writings and articles about the creature that this particular name has become known worldwide. The name Bigfoot first appeared in the October 5, 1958 copy of the Humboldt Times as a headline to an article written by the paper's editor, Andrew Ginzoli, on a local man named Jerry Crew, who had shown up at the paper's office with a plaster cast of a footprint found in Bluff Creek Valley. British Columbian stories about encounters and footprints have been recorded by Indians and settlers alike going back over 100 years but an oral history of Sasquatch encounters by British Columbia Indians goes back much further. J.W. Burns spent many years as a teacher on the Chehalis Indian Reserve beside the Harrison River, about 60 miles east of Vancouver, British Columbia. He wrote numerous articles and stories, 
which were published in the Vancouver newspapers of the day. He was keen to write about the encounters which local Indians were stated to have had with the hairy giants, including an article in a major national magazine in 1929, McLean's Magazine, April 1st issue. While those stories certainly did not convince non-Indian society that such creatures actually existed, they did make Sasquatch a household name, so much so that they even named a local inn after the creature. A collection of strange tales about British Columbia's wild men as told by those who say they have seen them are the vast mountain solitudes of British Columbia, of which but very few have been so far explored, populated by a hairy race of giant men, ape-like men. Reports from time to time covering a period of many years have come from the hinterlands of the province that hairy giants have been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain vastness, far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite, for the reason that no person could be found, or at least nobody came forward with the information that they had obtained a close-up view of these strange creatures. Persistent rumors led this writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. The question relating to the subject was always, or nearly always, evaded with the trite excuse, the white man don't believe. He make joke of the Indian. But after three years of plotting, I have come into possession of information more definite and authentic than has come to light in any previous time. Disregarding rumor and hearsay, I have prevailed upon men who claim they had actual contact with these hairy giants to tell what they know about them. Their story is set down here in good faith. Peter Williams lives on the Chehalis River. I believe that he is a reliable as well as an intelligent Indian. He gave me the following thrilling account of his experience with these people. Peter's Encounter with the Giant One evening in the month of May, twenty years ago, he said, I was walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Chehalis Reserve. I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder twenty or thirty feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but, as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. It was a man, a giant no less than six and one-half feet in height, and covered with hair. He was in rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I never ran so fast before or since, through brush and undergrowth toward the Statlu, or Chehalis River, where my dugout was moored. From time to time I looked back over my shoulder. The giant was fast overtaking me, a hundred feet separated us. Another look, and the distance measured less than fifty. Pushed my boat into the Chehalis, and in a moment the dugout shot across the stream to the opposite bank. The swift river, however, did not in the least daunt the giant, for he began to wade it immediately. 
I arrived home almost worn out from running, and I felt sick. Taking an anxious look around the house, I was relieved to find the wife and the children inside. I bolted the door and barricaded it with everything at hand. Then, with my rifle ready, I stood near the door and awaited his coming. Peter added that if he had not been so much excited, he could easily have shot the giant when he began to wade the river. After an anxious waiting of twenty minutes, resumed the Indian, I heard a noise approaching like the trampling of horse. I looked through a crack in the old wall. It was the giant. Darkness had not yet set in, and I had a good look at him. Except that he was covered with hair and twice the bulk of an average man, there was nothing to distinguish him from the rest of us. He pushed against the wall of the old house with such force that it shook back and forth. The old cedar shook, and timbers creaked and groaned so much under the strain that I was afraid it would fall down and kill us. I whispered to the old woman to take the children under the bed. Peter pointed out what remained of the old house in which he lived at the time, explaining that the giant treated it so roughly that it had to be abandoned the following winter. After prowling and grunting like an animal round the house, continued Peter, he went away. We were glad, for the children and the wife were uncomfortable under the old bedstead. Next morning I found his tracks in the mud around the house, the biggest of either man or beast I had ever seen. The tracks measured twenty-two inches in length, but narrow in proportion to their length. The following winter, while shooting wild duck on that part of the reserve Indians called the Prairie, which is on the north side of the Harrison River and about two miles from the Chehalis village, Peter once more came face to face with the same hairy giant. The Indian ran for dear life, followed by the wild man, but after pursuing him for three or four hundred yards, the giant gave up the chase. Old village Indians, who called upon Peter to hear of his second encounter, nodded their heads sagely, shrugged their shoulders, and for some reason not quite clear, seemed not to wish the story to gain any further publicity. On the afternoon of the same day, another Indian by the name of Paul was chased from the creek, where he was fishing for salmon, by the same individual. Paul was in a state of terror, for unlike Peter, he had no gun. A short distance from his shack, the giant suddenly quit and walked into the bush. Paul, exhausted from running, fell in the snow, and had to be carried home by his mother and others of the family. The first and second time, Peter went on, I was all alone when I met this strange mountain creature. Then, early in the spring of the following year, another man and myself were bear hunting near the place where I first met him. On this occasion we ran into two of these giants. They were sitting on the ground. At first we thought they were old tree stumps, but... When we were within fifty feet or so, they suddenly stood up, and we came to an immediate stop. Both were nude. We were close enough to know that they were man and woman. The woman was the smaller of the two, but neither of them as big or fierce-looking as the giant that chased me. We ran home, but they did not follow us. One morning, some few weeks after this, Peter and his wife were fishing in a canoe on the Harrison River near Harrison Bay. Paddling round a neck of land, they saw on the beach within a hundred feet of them 
the giant Peter had met the previous year. We stood for a long time looking at him, said the Indian, but he took no notice of us. That was the last time I saw him, concluded Peter. Peter remarked that his father and numbers of old Indians knew that wild men lived in the caves in the mountains, had often seen them. He wished to make it clear that these creatures were in no way related to the Indian. He believes that there are a few of them living at present in the mountains near Agassiz. That concludes story number three about Sasquatch and J.W. Burns. Story number four. Jacko, British Columbia gorilla captured. British Columbia, July 3rd, 1882. In the immediate vicinity of Number 4 Tunnel, situated some 20 miles above this village, are bluffs of rock which have hitherto been insurmountable, but on Monday morning last were successfully scaled by Mr. Onderdonk's employees on their regular train from Lytton. Assisted by Mr. Costerton and the British Columbia Express Company's messenger, and a number of gentlemen from Lytton and points east of that place, who, after considerable trouble and perilous climbing, succeeded in capturing a creature which may truly be called half-man and half-beast. Jacko, as the creature has been called by his captors, is something of the gorilla type, standing about four feet seven inches in height and weighing about 127 pounds. He has long, black, strong hair and resembles a human being with one exception. His entire body, except his hands or paws and feet, are covered with glossy hair about one inch long. His forearm is much longer than a man's, and he possesses extraordinary strength, as he will take hold of a stick and break it by wrenching it or twisting it, which no man living could break in the same way. Since his capture, he is very reticent, only occasionally uttering a noise, which is a half-bark and half-growl. He is, however, becoming more attached to his keeper, Mr. George Tilbury, of this place, who proposes shortly starting for London, England, to exhibit him. His favorite food so far is berries, and he drinks fresh milk with evident relish. By advice of Dr. Hannington, raw meats have been withheld from Jacko, as to make him savage. The mode of capture was as follows. Ned Austin, the engineer on coming in sight of the bluff at the eastern end of Number 4 Tunnel, saw what he supposed to be a man lying asleep in the close proximity to the track, and, as thought, blew the signal to apply the brakes. The brakes were instantly applied, and in a few seconds the train was brought to a standstill. At this moment the supposed man sprang up, and uttering a sharp, quick bark, began to climb the steep bluff. Conductor R.J. Craig and express manager Costerton, followed by the baggage men and brakemen, jumped from the train, and, knowing they were some twenty minutes ahead of time, immediately gave chase. After five minutes of perilous climbing, the then-supposed demented Indian was corralled on the projecting shelf of rock, where he could neither ascend nor descend. The query was how to capture him alive, which was quickly decided by Mr. Craig, 
who crawled on his hands and knees until he was about forty feet above the creature. Taking a small piece of loose rock, he let it fall, and it had the desired effect of rendering the poor jackal of resistance for a time at least. The bell rope was then brought up, and Jacko was now lowered to terra firma. After firmly binding him and placing him in the baggage car, off brakes was sounded, and the train started for Yale. At the station a large crowd, who had heard of the capture by telephone from Spasm Flat, were assembled, each one anxious to have the first look at the monstrosity. But they were disappointed, as Jacko had been taken off at the machine shops and placed in charge of his present keeper. The question naturally arises, how came the creature where it was first seen by Mr. Austin? From bruises about its head and body, and apparently soreness since its capture, it is supposed that Jacko ventured too near the edge of the bluff, slipped and fell, and lay where found until the sound of the rushing train aroused him. Mr. Thos, White, and Mr. Gaon, C.E., as well as Mr. Major, who kept a small store about a half-mile west of the tunnel during the past two years, have mentioned having seen a curious creature at different points between camps 13 and 17, but no attention was paid to their remarks as people came to the conclusion that they had either seen a bear or stray Indian dog. Who can unravel the mystery that now surrounds Jacko? Does he belong to a species hitherto unknown in this part of the continent? Or is he really what the trainman first thought he was, a crazy Indian? No one ever positively determined the eventual fate of Jacko, however. It is believed that during the voyage to England the creature died and its corpse was disposed of overboard, which would have been a standard practice during that time period. No one knew for certain... And that ends the reading of Jacko, British Columbia Gorilla Captured. Story number five comes to us directly from Will Jevning. It is his interview of Al Hogsden in 2005. There has been little mention of Al Hogsden, the man who would play a pivotal role in the events surrounding Bluff Creek. He became one of the prominent investigators who eventually made history in that region during the 1960s. But only those who have taken a serious look at the history of the Sasquatch issue will be familiar with the role and importance of Hogson. I recently traveled to Willow Creek, and Al consented to give me an interview. In my opinion, he should be included in any discussion of the events that have become historic with regard to the issue of the Sasquatch as a whole. Al Hogson is a humble individual who doesn't consider himself to be important to the issue. He is extremely friendly and a pleasure to talk to. I feel he should be given the respect and attention he is so deserving of, and therefore be placed alongside such big names associated with the Sasquatch issue as John Green, Rene DeHinden, Bob Titmus, Roger Patterson, and Bob Gimlin. These men are all the real pioneers of this subject. They are men who were willing to risk ridicule to bring light to the subject and started it on its way to formal recognition. The following is a transcript 
of my interview with Al Hogson in 2005. Jevning. What I would like to do first of all is find out uh, about you, uh, where you were born, where you grew up. Hogson. Well, I was born in Illinois, to be honest with you. Born in Illinois in 1923. We came to California during the Depression when my father and mother had done real well with the farm. But things went real bad. Then they lost everything in the crash of the banks. And the money was all gone. And they sold as much as they could. And we loaded us up. And we had eight kids. <laughs> Would you believe that at the time? We came to California. My father worked in Eureka at Hammond's. He worked over there at Hammond's. He worked there, and I don't remember exactly when, but it was before the 1906 earthquake because he was in San Francisco, then Eureka, and lost everything he had in the quake. And then he got back to Illinois and then married and raised a family, and he had done real well. Then the crash. So we moved here to Eureka, and Hammond's was closed. He figured he could go back to work at Hammond's, and well, it was closed, so... We wound up out here at Willow Creek, believe it or not, in 1933 we came to Willow Creek. Yeah, 1933. And Willow Creek wasn't much then, I tell you. We have a picture out here somewhere of it, but there was nothing here. A little bit of gold mining, sniping and so forth. In fact, it was how we got here. Somebody suggested, well, you might make some money sniping for gold on the Trinity River. Well, that didn't work out, and, and my dad went up towards Sums Bar, and that didn't work out either. So anyway, we still found a little place down there on South Fork, and we managed to raise a garden and caught some fish, and we ate more salmon. <laughs> I got so tired of salmon. We ate a little venison, and we survived. Finally, we got a little money from the sale of the place in Illinois, and there wasn't much money coming in, but... There was some later on, and so, anyway, we wound up established here in Willow Creek. And I lived here until I went into the service in 1941, just before the war. I was in before Pearl Harbor. In fact, I was in Detroit, Michigan, actually Dearborn, where I was attending a school there for the Navy. It was interesting. I didn't meet, but saw Henry Ford there and his son Edsel Ford, who was one of our officers. Anyway, it was interesting. It was interesting in a lot of ways. Well, they had their own steel mill there, and their own locomotives. The engines had no firebox, but they had a boiler, but no firebox. They would run over there to the steel mill and get a hot charge of steel and put it into the boiler to run the engine until it cooled and run back to the steel mill for another charge. It was a very interesting time there. I was in the Navy for five and a half years. I didn't see any action until the last six months. I was over in the Okinawa campaign, uh, there when they dropped the first bomb. The guys were absolutely stunned. They couldn't believe it. Then they dropped the second one, and Japan said they wanted to surrender, so we were operating squadron of four-engine seaplanes, and they patrolled the North Sea. Anyway, when Japan announced that they were surrendering, we pulled up anchor and headed for Japan. 
we pulled into Sasabo, Japan, right next to Nagasaki, and it was still smoldering. We pulled in there and was there three days before the Marines arrived. So here come the Marines invading, but the Japanese, there was no fight left in them. That was it. So we were there for a week, week and a half, and we went to Hong Kong and spent six weeks in Hong Kong. We left there just before Christmas, got into San Francisco, I think Christmas Day or something like that. Anyway, I got out of the Navy in 1946, and I worked here and got married and worked on the coast for five years, then came back here to Willow Creek and started this store. Jevning. What kind of store was it? Hogson. Well, we started out strictly as a five-and-dime store, or what you would call a variety store, and at the end, before we closed, we had branched out and had clothing and a whole bunch of stuff. That was our downfall. Clothing is hard to do, and well, it's hard. Anyway, we were in that, and we had quite a large store, 11,000 square feet, and the medical building at the end of town. That was our building. It still is our building, but at any rate, St. Joe's wanted to lease it, and they wanted it worse than we did, so we leased it to them, which was the best thing that ever happened to us. Even though it was sad and hard for me to get out of the store, Jevning. So, when did you first hear about something like Bigfoot, Hogson? Well, the first I recall was when I came back from the service in 1946, but I'm not exactly sure. My brothers had said something like, well, why don't you and I go over there and catch that ape over across the river? Well, I wasn't interested in catching the ape. I had other things to do. I was young and in my early 20s, and I thought, nah, I wasn't interested. So, anyway, that was the first I heard of it. And, of course, nobody said it was a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or anything. The word I heard was ape. And we all heard it over there, and it was over here just a couple of miles. Jevning. It was something that was common knowledge? Hugson. Yeah, well, over there, and everyone had heard it, and no one knew what it was. And fact is, one man, he wouldn't believe it wasn't animal. It had to be an animal. That was here, just something wrong with it. He said he thought it was a bear with a broken jaw. Fact is, it wasn't too many years ago before he died, the man. He's been gone several years now, but we still had the store, and he was here in the store, and said, I said to him, what do you think that was over there? And he said, well, I think it was a bear with a deformed throat. Jevning. This was because of the noises they heard? Hogson. Yeah, what they heard, but to him it had to be a bear. It couldn't be anything else. Could be a mountain lion or a bear with a deformed throat. Then a lady who had found tracks, or her daughter had seen the tracks, or had seen it, the creature, we had the first cast I, I had made, was lying on the counter in our store, and she came in and she said, Yeah, that's what was over at our place. Jevning. Well, how did outsiders come to take an interest in Willow Creek, do you know? People like John Green or Bob Titmus, people like that. Hogson. 
Well, I don't know exactly, but I think news spread pretty rapidly. Chevening. The reporter from Eureka who came out here with Jerry Crew? Hogson. Well, that was a news story. Uh, actually, this lady, who was a very good friend of ours named Betty Allen, she was a guest columnist for the Humboldt Times newspaper at that time, and I'm not sure, but she might have written my name in her column, and, well, she probably did, and anyway, she kept after me, and she said, Al, you should say something about this, meaning strange things being seen. It'd be good for Willow Creek, and of course, at first, I said, I'm not having anything to do with it. That's a hoax, and I want nothing to do with it. The fact is, they tried to sell me a copy of the first Titmus cast. Well, not the Titmus cast, Jerry Crew's first cast. Titmus had copies of the first cast Jerry Crew made, and I wouldn't buy it. I said, no, I don't want to buy it. This is a hoax, and I don't want anything to do with a hoax. When she, Betty Allen finally got me interested, I, I said, okay, I'll take you up. So my boys were small, and my wife, and we all got into the station wagon. We took her and this other guy, and we all went up there, Jevening. Now, is that up in the Bluff Creek area where they were building the roads? Hogson. Yeah, we went up to the Louse Camp. That's where we stopped, and then went on up from there, Jevening. What time period would that have been? Hogson. Oh, that would have been 1963. That's when she, Betty Allen, talked me into going up. And then she said, Al, why don't you go down to the creek? Well, I still wasn't too impressed with the tracks. On the road, they had covered them up with bark. And, well, we uncovered them. And sure enough, there were tracks there. And I understand that because the logging trucks were going by all the time, and they'd fill them up with dust. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any good tracks at all. In fact, the rest of the tracks were wiped out from that very thing. But anyway, we made casts of those tracks. And then she suggested, Al, why don't you go down to the creek and see if there's anything there? And I did, and sure did find tracks there. My wife to this day says that maybe somebody made them for me. Well, by golly, you don't know for sure. So anyway, that hooked me. I made a lot of trips up there, and I don't know other than the fact that through her call, I, well, I don't know if she wrote about me, but I think she did. And so word spread. Jevening. So when anyone came into town, you were the guy to see? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. So about the same time, Roger Patterson stopped at the store to see me and John Green about the same time. I don't remember seeing Rene de Hinden except when he was with John Green. I, I can't remember seeing Titmus unless it was with John Green either, but oh, I don't remember. It, it's been so long, I, I just don't remember. I, I didn't keep track of things like that. Jevning. Now, did the loggers or... Road builders ever stop at the store and tell you things they had seen? Hogson. Well, most generally not. You know, what the reason was is, in fact, some of them told me afterward, after the fact, hey, we saw tracks, but we didn't want all those people up there in our way. We're trying to make a living. Fact is, 
A lot of them simply hampered their operations. When a bunch of guys went up there with cameras and expecting to get the news media and everything else up there, and, well, that's what happened. A lot of people came into the store, and I'd shake my head, and I came in and find that some of them had driven in from Los Angeles and expected to catch him. Bigfoot, you know, over the weekend. And that's exactly what they told me. I just thought, come on, you guys, you're crazy. Then, over the years, I come to realize that they're everywhere, Sasquatches, not just up there in Bluff Creek area. Well, I told John Green once that that's a mecca out there for Bigfoot hunters. Anyway, that's kind of how I got into all this. I still don't consider myself anything. I may never have, but that's okay. Shepning. When Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin got the film, they came to see you, is that correct? Hogson. Well, yeah. What happened was, John Green had called me on a Thursday, I think, and said, Al, would you meet me at my chartered plane at Orleans? Then there was an airstrip there in those days, and not anymore, and that's a good thing because it was so bad that someone would eventually get killed there. Anyway, he had chartered a plane, and he had someone with a tracking dog that was coming. They wanted to go up there where the tracks had recently been found. And I said, sure, I'll meet you, John. So my wife said she would watch the store. My older son and I took the station wagon and went to Orleans and waited for the plane to come in. When it sat down, John and the dog handled Earl. Well, I'm not sure who was with them, but I think it was DeHinden. Jevning. Was this before Roger Patterson got the film? Hogson. That's correct. So we went up there. We got into the station wagon. Mike, my son, and I was driving. Mike was in the back seat with the dog handler. John was in the front seat, and DeHinden was in the back with the dog. The dog handler said that dog is going to follow it. And when he got there, very quickly he said, It's going to take care of that dog, and I'm next, referring to what made the tracks. That's exactly what he said. Jevening. He was afraid the creature was going to get them? Hoxton. That's right. And so I didn't think too much about it. Anyway, we stopped there at a little store up Bluff Creek to get some things to eat. Well, they hadn't brought anything. We stopped and got some stuff. John told me that I had loaned him a hundred dollars. And I, well, I don't remember it, but I took his word for it. He says I loaned him a hundred dollars. You know, he didn't have time to convert his Canadian money into U.S. dollars. So, anyway, they bought some things to take up that night to the campground. We came back out of the store, and that dog handler just had a fit. Here was Mike with his arm around that dog's neck. The handler said, that dog's a killer. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, kids and dogs. But, well, he just couldn't believe it. Anyway... We got up there just before dark, and there were tracks. I only saw two sets of tracks. Originally, there was three, but I never saw the third one. But I did see two sets, two different sizes. So anyway, I had promised Roger Patterson that I'd let him know if tracks showed up. Jevning. He'd asked you previously to do this? Hogson. Yeah, that's right. He had asked me previously if I'd call him, and I said, sure I will. 
Well, I had no idea how well he and John got along or anything. I had no idea, so I, I didn't call until John left. When John and the other guys had left, I called Roger, and I told him what I did. I said, I'm sorry, I'm concerned how you guys get along. He said, well, I think I'll come down anyhow. I said, well, they are probably clear out of the country by now. I expected there were only one or two, but I don't know, they're probably gone. And he said, well, I, I've been wanting to come down anyhow, I think I'll come down, and that's the last I heard from him, and till the day he took the film, and he stopped in from the store and told me. Al, he says, I got a picture of the son of a buck. Anyway, that's what happened there, and since then, long after that, only a couple years ago, I found out who found the tracks in the first place. I know the guy, and hesitate to reveal his name, because I'm not quite sure if he would want it known. He's an Indian fellow, and believe it or not, it's taken me a long time to talk to some of these people who were involved in some of these things. I'm not concerned about talking to them. I've talked to them about other things, but not about this. Hesitant about doing something to stop the trust, you know, between us, so I, I don't do that, reveal identities, for that reason. I do know him. Nice guy. And he said, Al, he told me, you know where those tracks were? He said, way up there on the ridge, way back. And he said that, well, I was the last guy out. Jevnin, was he part of the logging crew up there? Hogson, yeah, yeah, he was running it. He run that show up there. He wasn't the owner, but he run it, and he said that I was the last guy that night, and I was the first one in in the morning. There had been just a little shower of rain, and he said you could tell these are fresh tracks, and they went down this road and said that if anyone came in to fake the tracks, well, they would have had to come clear from Peck One up over the bridge, which is a long way through there. Jevning. There weren't too many roads through there yet, were there? Hogson. No. No, and there still isn't that many, but, you know, in that area anyway, but he said it was almost impossible for somebody to walk in and make fake tracks like that. He said it was almost impossible because, well, there'd have been tracks of whoever made the fake tracks, too. So Roger met me at the store, and he told me that he got pictures of him, you know, the Bigfoot, and I talked to him for a long time that night. He says we got to get back up there. This other friend of mine who worked for the Forest Service, he called me later and he says, Al, come on down to the forestry. And Sil McCoy and I both went down with Roger Patterson and with Gimlin and talked that night, oh, I don't know how long, a lot longer than we should have because, well, they were anxious to get up back there to their horses well, when we left down here. I don't know, but it was late then, and when we got in there, and they had problems getting out. Those were some interesting experiences. There are so many things I'd like to see. I'd like to see one, a Sasquatch. I don't expect to anymore, but you never know either. Jeffney. After the film was made, Patterson's, it, it seemed like it got really quiet up there at Bluff Creek. Was anything seen again after that? Hogson. No, not to my knowledge there wasn't, but that doesn't mean anything. 
Like you said, so many people don't say anything, and there is so much controversy about these things being fake and what have you. And I think a lot of people don't, well, didn't want to get wound up in something like this. I don't blame them. I'd see it the same way. In fact, I know people right today that don't want to because they say, well, I don't want to get in this. I don't want to get in this thing here. They may tell me, but so many of them don't want to tell me because they're afraid, and like this National Geographic film crew who was here about a year ago. That just made me sick because some of the people that told me they didn't want to come up front, well, anyway, to talk about their experiences, but then they didn't like the way they were portrayed in this manner. Jevning, I'm not familiar with this. Hogson, you're not? Jevning, National Geographic did a film on this? The Sasquatch? Hogson, yes, oh yes, a year ago. And I busted my butt to get people for them that had seen a Sasquatch. I had about a half dozen people that came forward, but you know something? They had to portray Wallace, Ray Wallace, and some of these people and, and make them look like a bunch of fools. Jevning, you knew Ray Wallace, Hoxson. Oh yeah, I knew him. Jevning, he used to run a logging crew up there at Bluff Creek, didn't he? Hoxson, well he was quite a wheel. I mean, as far as uh, he contracted and uh, d did a lot of contracting and road building, and, well, this wasn't the only place. In fact, it's one of the guys that was up there, one of the guys that knew him very well. Fact is, he told me that Ray actually practically raised him. He was an orphan, and Ray gave him a job and took care of him. And he says, I don't think Ray did all this crap they say that, that he did. Jevning. All the fake stuff? Hogson. Yeah, now he and I both agree that Ray was great for a joke, but he wasn't a guy to fake all this stuff and try to make it look real. Jevning. I see. Hogson. There's no doubt in my mind that he was a prankster. He loved it, but like this fellow said who knew him so well, he was hardly ever up there. He was out someplace else bidding on more jobs to keep his crews working. Chevening. Another thing I was interested in was, how did you come about putting the museum together? Hoxson. Well, you know the museum was put together here initially by a group of Willow Creek people, including my sister, and I had a small part back, well, nothing really important. And I understand initially, according to her, my sister, oh, my son, the youngest son, mentioned to her husband, who is now deceased, that, oh, too bad we don't have a museum for some of the local stuff, not Bigfoot. And so consequently, they wound up putting this together with that group of people from Willow Creek, from all different walks of life. And so then when Bob Titmus died, well, he made it known to John Green that he'd like for his things would you know, come up here, providing he would have a separate room. He said, no, we, we don't want it in a little corner, but in a separate room. So from then I went to the Chamber of Commerce, and they weren't interested. And I went to the museum board, and well, they went for it. One guy, though, was so dead set against it about being hoaxed. Well, he resigned from the board. At any rate, that was how they built that wing over there. 
They raised a hundred-something thousand dollars when, when they built that. We talked to the local Chrysler agency and put on golf tournaments to pay for it, and then Simpson Logging and some others donated a lot of materials and built that building. Jevning. Do you get a lot of people that come through and show a lot of interest in the museum? Hoxson. Oh, yeah, and anyway, that's how it got put together. Some people are die-hard skeptics yet today who say, Ah, Bigfoot. We don't need Bigfoot, of all things. One of the people that thinks this way was the executive secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, and well, her husband worked for the Forest Service for years, and he was a friend of mine and never saw anything. So, to her, it doesn't exist because her husband never saw anything. But that's the way she is. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's hard for me sometimes because this has brought more people to Willow Creek. Jevning. Al, is there anything you'd like to say about the issue of Sasquatch itself? Hogson. Well, I absolutely believe... I've come to believe they exist. It took me a long time to come to that conclusion. Fact is, when I really positively become a believer was during putting all this together here. I'll tell you why. I don't have any idea where your religious beliefs are, but what happened? We at the time had a Bible study at our house every Friday night. After this one Friday night, after we had put the museum together, I told the Bible study that night what had happened, and then when everyone had left except this one couple, well, the wife came up to me and she said, Al, you know, I saw one. She told me, and she said, I don't want you to tell anyone. My family laughed at me too much already. I don't want more people laughing at me. And so that is why I truly became a believer. There was no doubt in my mind she wasn't lying, and they had a hunting cabin somewhere below Mark's Ferry there and back up a ways. They were hunting, and, well, she wasn't hunting, but she was at the cabin, and she and her mother were sitting outside on lawn chairs, and her son come up the road. Apparently the road, you know, come up where they could see, and she said she saw it coming, and she said, there's something following him. And as it got closer, she saw what it was, and it got up there, and she said it just stood right there and looked at her. She could tell me right away exactly what it looked like. Jevning. Well, Al, that should do it. Thank you. I sure appreciate the interview. Hogson. Well, I hope it'll help you, and maybe people will find it interesting. I wish I could remember more of the details of the things that happened here, but I really didn't pay attention. I, I, I did, and I didn't. I knew Jerry Crew. I knew him well and never asked him about it, the things what happened around the Bluff Creek area in the 1950s. I saw him many years afterward, and I still didn't ask him about it. And what really got me was he wasn't alone when he took those first casts of tracks. There was a fellow by the name of J.Q. Hunter, and another named Jess Pascal with Jerry Crew. That information was not known until the symposium two years ago. On a Saturday, they went up there and they found tracks. They didn't have any plaster of Paris, no camera, nothing. 
So they came back to Willow Creek to get plaster of Paris. Well, it was too late that night, so they went up Sunday. Well, Jerry and this other guy went up. J.Q. Hunter oh, couldn't go because he was preaching that Sunday. He was the pastor there at the Bible church. So the two of them went up, and they made those casts. I knew all those people. There were such great people. Although Al Hogson is seldom mentioned in books written about the Sasquatch, he is one of the pivotal sources in the history of this subject, as were the events that took place in Bluff Creek, Northern California, between 1957 and 1967. These really captured the public's attention on the subject. Today, with the passing of time and people who were directly involved in some of the important events that brought the subject of the Sasquatch to the public consciousness, controversy about those events abounds. And, unfortunately, it is being created by those eager to gain attention and notoriety by any means, positive or negative. For example, Jerry Crew's plaster cast impressions of some of the footprints he and other workers found around their equipment at the work site are today being called into question by members of Ray Wallace's family. They claim that Wallace made wood feet to play a joke on workers. However, Roger Patterson wrote about Wallace's reaction when he saw the footprints that work crews had found, and he was as mystified as the others. Furthermore, Al Hogson, who knew Ray Wallace well, stated that he never believed that Ray was behind any hoax. The fact is that footprints have been found literally by the thousands of various sizes over decades prior to the Bluff Creek finds and long after Wallace's death. This in itself lends credibility to the findings. Al Hogson became the person to contact when outsiders such as John Green and Rene DeHinden came to Bluff Creek. Hogson knew many of the workers who discovered strange footprints, and he knew them to be honest individuals. Perhaps the most enduring event for which Al should be remembered is Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin obtaining the only film footage to date of a Sasquatch. Al said that Patterson had asked him to notify him if tracks showed up. So after the trip, Green and DeHinden made in September 1967 with the tracking dog, where footprints were found, Al did just that. And the rest is history. This ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com that's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there. <laughs>